Welcome to Drinking the Movies with Michael and Taylor, episode number two. Uh, we're drinking Dang Citra IPA from Hellbent Brewing Company, as we drank from Hellbent Brewing Company in the previous episode. What do you think, Michael? Similarly delicious. We're two for two. Two for two. What do you think about the palate, though? Notice any difference? Mm, let me take another swig here. Mm. I feel like it's more hoppy. Um, I feel like that hop and oats had more of a sweetness to it. Yeah, this is a tad hoppier, but um, similarly crisp, not overwhelming. Yeah. It's also that freezer. That freezer adds an extra touch. I think nicely maybe the, chilled. The chilled glasses help any beer. I, maybe the citrus juice brings out mm. the hop as well, whereas the oats kind of suppress it and sweeten it. Just a bit fruity. Just Lovely. a bit fruity. Great choice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we're going to start with Interview with the Vampire. Uh, any opening thoughts? Opening thoughts? Well, we are on a bit of a vampire theme this week. We are. At your suggestion. Yep. So, oh, Thanks, Interview Netflix. with the Vampire <laughs> is one of our three vampire movies. We'll just go ahead and lay those out. So. Sure. And think about those in advance in case the connections just inevitably come up. So in addition to Interview with the Vampire, we have Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, as well as Only Lovers Left Alive, Jim Jarmusch movie. I think we have three pretty uh, different choices Very that different will choices. invite some interesting uh, connections. <laughs> yes, and some different belaboring of words. I agree. <laughs> Uh, interview with the vampires. Where we're starting though, Tom Cruise, Brad Tom Pitt, Cruise. Kirsten Dunst. Uh, early nineties. Christian well. Slater. I, I can't forget about Christian Hinges Slater. Hinges on Slater. It does. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas as well. Possibly uh, the most convincing of the vampires. I wouldn't disagree with that. Um. Knee-jerk reaction. Did you like this movie? Did you not like it? I did not like it, but I liked a few moments in it a lot, and I'm really glad that I got to see those moments. Um, but overall, it was just a bad adaption of Anne Rice's book. Even though she wrote the screenplay, I don't think that that director was suited to a period piece at that time, or that their budget was too constraining, and maybe producers wanted people in roles that um they shouldn't have been in at the time we should clarify you you did read the book i did read the book i yeah. have not read the book i read the book a long time ago though. it was more than a decade probably more than 15 years ago so but I, I still remember the feel of it and the feel it you know it's a film that begins in the mid 1700s with brad pitt um well it it begins with christian slater interviewing brad pitt uh but then we get a flashback as he's giving an interview to Christian Slater. And that's in the mid-1700s. Um, and the character who turns him is Tom Cruise's Lashat, who was also made into a vampire in the 1700s. Neither of them speak with the correct words in any capacity. And that really threw me off of this biopic historical film that was, you know, what we were supposed to be getting. When you say they don't speak with the right words in relation to the book. You mean and 
words of the time we were watching mm, okay. them in the yeah. 1700s speaking like they were in the americas in the 1900s the late right. 1990s probably right a little jarring perhaps yes that makes uh, sense but that opening shot leading to brad pitt in the window best shot of the movie it doesn't i think i have other favorite it. moments maybe we'll start there moments. the moments we do like but what about what about just like a directing moment just a directing moment, not uh, a performance. It is a, it is a feat for sure, and yeah. I, I do think it's a, a pretty strong note to open on. I would agree. It was it was striking, um, but I, I but I do think I have other scenes that I enjoyed. Tell um, us about Tom Cruise and a piano. Far and away, my favorite scene is Tom Cruise, who we you know despite them being in uh, vampires, we see them you know kind of take a couple different forms, right? see them in the kind of i guess classic uh vampire look with translucent uh white skin where you can see the blue veins just beneath the skin it's a great look and then on just a few occasions you see the vampires turn into that much like more kind of gnarled look where yes when they tom kind of have it fed for a while or yeah and tom cruise's hurt. skin looks more kind of like leathery or like yes. goblin like or something like that so there is a scene after uh, Lestat and Louis have been in a fight about something. I can't quite remember what the inciting event I, was. Perhaps the right slave plantation being lit on fire. I, I guess that was, is that the sequence of events? I, yes, I remember I believe the, so. my, the moment that I liked particularly, but I can't remember what immediately preceded it. So I, I remember Fandy Newton gets drained. Right. The slaves come and like want to raise a stink with the manse or the mansion owner who's brad pitt or the state owner whatever you want to pick and he's already been like nah fuck it i'm just gonna light the whole thing on fire <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly very enjoyable and lestat is not happy with him no he wants to not live a life happy. of lavish luxury he really does he wants to live at the height of decadence and louis is not getting there for him and uh, <laughs> to Louis's surprise, Lestat shows up at the piano behind a gauzy curtain, just uh, just gently sort of, you know, shading our view of him. And he's playing a, a sonata of sorts and has a bit of a monologue that ends with him addressing uh, Kristen Dunst's character, Claudia. I, I, I almost forgot her name. And he says, Claudia, you have been a very, very, naughty girl and it's just a great <laughs> campy delivery and i think those moments are ones that i liked because they were um particularly campy and i did not think that they were in sync with the rest of the movie and i really wanted the rest of the movie to kind of get on that level of theatricality yeah and they played more um of they played more like a prestige drama of of, of uh a prestige of just a different kind of movie film of, of history false right. history but and it's fictional because they lean into this pageantry that you like right. which means that they're leaning away from historical accuracy because mm -hmm. they're not speaking properly if you go back to last year's darkest hour when gary oldman is speaking as they spoke in britain in the 1950s and 40s it's an entirely different way of speaking. And we're talking yeah. about going back 600 years. It's a long time. Potentially. Like, th this is 
uh, be, because there's characters that have been around for so long, Antonio Banderas's character, it, he has more natural speech patter, but it's still noticeable that he's of the wrong climate. You know, like he's speaking to freshly and that could have been because yeah. he recently acquired his american language um, ability to, to speak at all because i think that he he learned in 1990 or 1991 how to speak english period so he was two years in so it, yeah. it kind of gave his pattern more convincingness or uh, believability but him and kirsten dunce were by far my favorite vampires right so i think it's fair to say that as a period film you think this failed yes quite because that's what it tried to be Right. But I think that you pointed out the makeup. And I, I do think that the mm. makeup was really, really good. And I think that if I take time to notice that, then the art design, the set decorations, uh, the set locations were all really, really spot on. Like, mm. couldn't have done better, but you could have probably done everything else better. <laughs> right. And I, I wish it had just leaned into what it did really well more i just like you said the locations were great like i could have seen more of those southern locations more voodoo too right they describe uh you know the the swamp where they drop lestat off at in hopes that he'll die like when i think of the south like i'm, I'm thinking of the bayou you know like mm -hmm. this is a, a pretty um uh like a it's a potent location that's just full of opportunity for really great imagery and i don't think that it really capitalized on that but when it did i thought it was pretty enjoyable and if you want to see a vampire uh work of art that does capitalize on that true blood people true blood mm. great they don't try to pretend that they're really really old so the speech pattern mm. is fine it's specifically southern speech pattern great performances given probably anna packen's best role for the last 10 years unfortunately for her you'd so. probably suggest that over interview with the vampire absolutely over interview with the vampire <laughs> easy call but uh let's before we move on let's let's get into the the uh banal little bits of debate that we can have so michael how can you convince me or the listener mm. that damsel is twice as good as interview with the vampire and how was the first purge better the first purge was better than interview with the vampire but equally as good as damsel correct i think i gave i'm trying to remember what i gave so the so you gave interview with the vampire one and a half right you gave the first purge two two okay you okay, gave damsel okay. three right Right. So Damsel's twice as good as this movie, and the first Purge is a quarter better. I'm curious how. Right. So, well, okay. I have to. I think I should. I should first sort of describe what I think goes into the ratings, and if it's sort of like a measure of what I think is objectively right or good versus just sort of a measure of like how strongly I responded to it. I think there's. Those are so is it like, kind of how you feel in, or how you think about it or is it both? It can be it can be both for sure. I mean those things are kind of interrelated, right? Like if it's objectively good, how can something not be objectively good and not elicit any reaction at all? That so was interview with the vampire maybe something that you just felt more than thought about? 
and that's why it was kind of such a strong reaction against. I think the more I thought about it, the the more problems I had with it. Oh, really? Okay. I think so. Because I, I was the opposite. <laughs> I felt really bad, and then I had to, like, think through, like, okay, but Kirsten Dunst was convincing, and Antonio Banderas mm. was holding his own, and, you know, there were these moments where Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are isolated, and, you know, there's a little bit of eroticism played in there that mm. Anne Rice plays up a lot more in her books, and, you know, I believed all of it. It was just the editing and the speech pattern that ruined it. Absolutely yep. ruined it. But didn't ruin it so bad that I rated it worse than the first purge. Yeah. Or, you know, half of what I rated Damsel. Yeah. I think the the biggest problem with this movie for me was that it failed to convince me to empathize with Brad Pitt's character. We spend so much time being told about okay, well, how we're a downtrodden podcast, he is. So yeah. Yeah. Well, we see him get downtrodden specifically. Right. Um, Immediately from so, the outset. So at the <laughs> end, you don't take what happens to the girl that he cares about at all to heart. We're talking to about Claudia. Kirsten Dunst getting mm-hmm. burned alive in a pit <laughs> from the sun and the arms of another woman getting burned alive in the pit while mm-hmm. Brad Pitt is... Uh, brad pitt's louis is uh bricked in to a wall in a coffin the words you say describe frightening things i don't think the filmmaking or the craft itself involved me emotionally particularly i entirely agree with you but brad pitt's performance of desire to get out and to get to claudia and claudia's desire Mm. to not die made me build an emotional bridge there where the art uh, or the artistry of everyone else got in the way i still mm. believed those two performances of of um care for each other enough that i felt something that makes sense uh i think there were a couple things that tripped me up one was that at the outset what sort of um triggers his gloominess is the death of his wife and daughter before he becomes a vampire right that's sort of what um precipitates this depression that Mm -hmm. that sort of leads this openness to death that gave his skin a stench that lestat wanted to devour and thus right right exactly and subsequently he's sort of depressed by what it what being a vampire requires which is to feed on humans he wants to yes. feed on the animals he feels bad about eating the humans um again i i've i failed well, to to okay, empathize so with his is? with his issue why do you think he didn't want to kill people uh because he's morally uh he finds it morally repugnant why um, because he has because he has you empathy. just described why because, because he's his morally repugnant daughter and his wife died and they made yeah. him feel such loneliness and despair that he yeah. doesn't want to do that to someone else and that doesn't yeah. translate other than um in plainness like they just do it they don't explain it or, or pontificate on it at all whereas in the book it's a little bit more about how included. they died no, no 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 about how that affects his sense of morality 
oh, that he gotcha. doesn't want to give despair to someone else through the loss of their loved ones. Mm. And that's kind of the subtext of, of Louis. A little bit more than... They don't really give that subtext. It's just kind of like, right. you see him suffering because he lost someone, and then he doesn't want to do that to other people. And it's up to you to either figure that out and believe it, or to say, sure, but not here. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of, to me, more sure but not here because i knew why it was there and i was like all right yeah that's why the character got there but that's not why this version of the character got there right but i I feel like there's nothing worse than watching a movie that involves sad things that doesn't make you feel sad that triggers guilt that i should be feeling sad about this and i'm not and it therefore i feel like something is going wrong with what the director is doing a movie that did that to me was uh violet and daisy Saoirse Ronan movie, yeah. right? I did yeah. not see it, but... They, yeah. they kind of do the same thing, where by the end, you're supposed to feel really bad for one of these girls, or both of them. And I just was... You know, it was like watching two Olivia cook some thoroughbreds for me. Like, I just did not mm. care. <laughs> I was like, you don't really care. I don't really care. Let's just get where we're going and kill right. some people. You're hit, ladies. Come on, ladies. Right. <laughs> I think one scene that really encapsulated that for me was at the theater of vampires where antonio banderas gets involved and brad pitt and kirsten dunst are watching one of their performances for the first time and they bring out the nude audience member and devour her on stage it's a great scene such a good scene the problem with that scene while delicious and it's a just visually exciting is that we keep getting these shots of Brad Pitt's face and ostensibly I feel like I should perhaps be feeling his, um, how repulsed he is by this. I am, I was really not situated in that scene from his perspective. I really felt like a voyeur and I was fine with that. But that's where, like, my enjoyment of the movie sort no, of separates I... from what I think is good so about it. So you think it. we weren't supposed to feel like a voyeur? I don't think so. Some of the thing about that editing suggested to me that they were trying to align us with Brad Pitt, who was sort of scoffing at it. Not scoffing, but disgusted by it. Yes. And I did find it kind of dis- disgusting in a way, but it's also the most exciting scene. I felt like it was voyeuristic because we were seeing how he was reacting Mm, to it. Right. And I feel like I was next to him almost. Like I was really there watching this. And what I was feeling was this awe and just surprise at, at, wow, are they really going to do this in front of everyone? No one's going to really know that she's not really acting and that this is really real for her. And I was just like so thrilled by that. And I was thrilled by Brad Pitt being the only one in the audience that knew the truth that he found it disgusting but that as an audience member i both knew what brad pitt knew but i also knew what the rest of the audience knew which was that this was an amazing spectacle right and i thought that was just a really special moment right not necessarily something that was well directed but maybe something that to me was more evoked by the editing for once Mm. where the editing actually got me somewhere where i was like oh wow i'm here in the movie and then instantly i'm i'm gone again you know, until the, uh, the scene. Right. Right. Let the vampires hit the floor. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I cannot remember off the top of my head 
how Antonio Banderas describes what the vampires sort of what sort of satisfaction they get out of duping these audience members into thinking this is a play. So one of the questions I had for you was, what sort of satisfaction do you think that is for these vampires to put on this as an act when it is well, it has to a be real very satisfying because right the 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 trope the convention is vampires do what they do at night and they do it under the veil of night and they do it behind corners and alleys they do it hiding they they yeah. do it looking um away from everyone and this is a chance for all of them together to almost have a sexual experience in front of an audience that's cheering and has no idea what's going on is real and because they don't believe it's real they are on the side of the vampire right which never would have happened if vampires were real that would never happen and so it, I, I don't know I thought it was a I think that it's Anne Rice's astute observation that made that scene happen right. and it's you know it's no more than that and that's why it's something that even you picked up on is momentous even if the Mm. art ruined it it was still a momentous thing right momentous enough to have noticed yeah yeah i thought that that was kind of a a cinematically self-aware uh moment these audience members watching something they think is fake but that has this very real aspect to it which can kind of be like movies movie going sometimes right you watch something you think it's fictitious and you enjoy it for that and then you sort of also realize the 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 truth behind it and that's what gives it its weight it's obviously a very real weight in this case but sometimes it's just someone in the theater where you know you're watching something and someone's reacting to it and sometimes it's really really annoying like today at the movie some guy kept talking to his wife behind us and I was like, I don't need to hear about what character is like your family member and you pointing that out mm. to your wife. But when I was watching um, Skyscraper, which was terrible, there was a drunk guy behind me that thought everything was awesome. <laughs> and as I was sitting there drinking a beer, I was like, this is amazing. I'm so excited to hear this guy who's excited, who just mm. like worked a really hard week probably, be super excited for this diehard-ish movie that I couldn't care less about, but I'm sharing his experience. And, and that's, you know, it's kind of playing into that where it's like, yeah. how do you mm-hmm. feel about the experience? And, you know, it's just the art that ruined it, really. The art form that ruined it, you know. Right. I think that if you read the book, you would have been about two points higher on the rating. Right. Uh, any other particular scenes you liked? Just let the vampires hit the floor. And I guess Fair the enough. Benicio breakup. Or not Benicio, uh, sorry. Antonio, oh, Antonio Banderas. Banderas. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Blending the actors here. Um, Antonio Banderas breaking him out of the brick wall. And then um, Louis, Brad Pitt's Louis, kind of hearing him out and then saying, I don't care. I'm going back. And that actually that final scene where he smells the stench of death when he leaves the movie theater watching the sunrise... Um, and he goes through the graveyard and he reaches all the mice where tom cruise was making fun of him for feasting on uh non-humans now tom cruise is barely living off of these mice and that that interaction there um was really cool and then like a fun pageant moment Mm. was when christian slater ends up in the car with tom cruise at the end 
I really did enjoy that. Actually. That was a good I surprise. I thought that was very fun. <laughs> I, I would love to pick up and do a 90 minute like road trip movie with those characters right now and their ages right now. <laughs> that could be a much Cruise better movie. Is probably younger now. Mm-hmm. Christian Slater isn't a vampire, so it's perfect. <laughs> I think you're onto something. Do you think the framing device, having this as an interview, contributed to any any feeling you got from it or detracted from it? I'd say it contributed to it because otherwise the breaks in the timeline wouldn't work. So if mm. you remove the interview element, then the breaks in the timeline don't work at all for me. Mm. Um, and then it would really, really make it obvious how terrible the screenplay was for their word choice right it's even more immediate mm-hmm. that makes sense because there wouldn't have been a a forward moment in time for us to hear language so we would have just been like why are you speaking like it's the 90s you know but i mean it, it really just felt like someone talking today you know very maybe, modern maybe they used a dialogue. few different describing words for cool than we would use now i don't really recall but that's kind of the only way to tell the age is what's what's the word for cool <laughs> right um i don't disagree you gave it a two and a half two and a half correct yeah i feel really good about the two and a half sticking with it sticking with it i, I no feel heart. like it wasn't good enough to be above the fact that it was made and that it's redeemable enough for existing and that that's it like it doesn't deserve to not exist which is kind of something that happens when you rate under two and a half for me mm. and when you rate over two and a half you're saying that it did something other than actually make a movie that functioned i feel like it made a movie that functioned and there's a lot to nitpick but you know there were moments that we both agree were just can't be pleasure so it's like they made a big movie they had some fun performances there was some beauty in it. It was overshadowed by the storytelling technique of negativity. Right. That's where I find... That's when I find ratings pretty tricky is when, on the whole, do I think this worked for me? Not at all. But there are moments that make it worth the watch and that yeah. would make me suggest it to anybody. So it's like, is that... It's definitely what is, worth What do these feelings... Do these cancel out and make it a two and a half just to split down the middle? Well, um, where do you start your rating from? Do you start from the middle or do you start from zero? And it's all I don't even there. think about it that way. It's okay. out of pure instinct. I, I think about it from two and a half. It's very impressive. You made a movie. You get two and a half stars. Mm. And then everything you do from when I start watching to when I end plays with what you get after that. Right. So it, you either detract from your score, build your score, do both. One, one of those. But I feel like you... I, I feel like I need to start from a neutral ground two and a half so that every movie has a chance no matter what to, to convince right. me. Or, or else yeah. I'm just going to be a guy that gives a lot of ones and twos if I start right. from zero. Some people just no like sense. to see an, an even bell curve. Yeah. Some people, you know, just assume that I pick movies that I watch, so it probably makes sense that it's skewed towards the right. Yeah. That graph makes a big difference. <laughs> I have a very even bell curve. Movies <laughs> that I watched before the last four years tend to be on the far right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Since then. Kind of more in the middle. <laughs> Do you... Uh, we're getting off topic into general movies. We'll come back to that later. Oh, don't um, worry. We can edit that in post. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, other thoughts? Interview with the vampire? Um, I'm trying to think 
I, I guess that Fandy Newton should have probably had a bigger role. I wish we would have spent more time on the plantation. Spent more time with the plantation. I would agree. I like Fandy Newton. Did you have any um, any other thoughts or notes that maybe you wanted to... I can't remember. I, had, I feel like I had another question. Yeah. Not that we didn't really talk about it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, before we completely abandon Interview with the Vampire, just one minute. How is it that Damsel's twice as good as this movie? It's a great question. I think I felt like the performances in Damsel were better calibrated for the tone of the film. In Interview with the Vampire, despite getting some satisfaction from how over-the-top Tom Cruise's performance was, I think it's not in line with the overall mood. Sure. I have the same kind of period problems that you do that sort of just stand out like a sore thumb. And I thought the framing device just really distanced me from feeling any uh, emotional involvement with Brad Pitt, who I felt like was the character who I'm supposed to be emotionally identifying with, and I just couldn't get there. Yeah, I'd say that I was more emotionally involved with Claudia the whole time. Mm. And then I, w I was very interested in Antonio Banderas, how he was surviving, what he was going to do to survive, if he was going to survive, just because the oldest living vampire is a fascinating prospect. Right. Damsel, more specifically, it's always hard to, to kind of do ratings side by side because, you know, things don't always line up sort of one to one. But what stood out to me in Damsel that I think garnered it that higher rating is one, the location shooting. I don't think I'm going to forget some of those locations for quite a while and how much I enjoyed seeing those that characters. That mystical just... west. Exactly. That he specifically talked and, about. And specifically coastal scenes, which you don't see, or I haven't seen in that many westerns that I thought were really striking. Well, I liked... that's because they made a fictional west. Exactly. Right? right? This is the, like the Pacific Northwest. Um, no, it's, it's Oregon Utah. Oregon where... Didn't he say they were shooting those? They uh, shot the coast shots in yeah. northern Oregon. Right, And right. then they shot all the scenes in Utah. Or at least the scenes with the rocks. And then they right, where it looks more California. like a desert or yeah, something. Yeah, so it's just this mixed sense of the West. And that's what the West right. was at that time, which is why I thought it was an interesting choice. Right. It is a... Uh, it isn't like a really lived-in kind of landscape no, by any means. there's a town. <laughs> there's a house outside the town that they go to there's an outhouse um and there's a few campfires along the way <laughs> and right. that is it i think damsel might allow me to enjoy and think about other kinds of movies in a way i wouldn't have had i not seen it even though that might be giving it a little bit too much credit so you're saying but i do it's so bad you can like other movies more <laughs> No, but I, 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 di I did find it's toying with the genre to, to, be, to be interesting. While it wasn't terribly fun, or as fun as I think they kind of wanted it to be, I liked the tropes. The first was fun. And then it sort of dozed, yeah. nosed off. Or, well, they yeah. killed off the funnest character. 
True. And then it got mm-hmm. really serious and meandery because like the whole purpose of the movie is go get the girl, and then the purpose after that is what? It's a lot of nothing. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> But I would still rather sit in those moments with Mia Vasakovska in those landscapes than I would sort of skulk around with Louis in New Orleans. I would rather <laughs> just go with the parson in the Indian. I want the parson mm. in the Indian. I want mm. I want a full two hour feature <laughs> they buddy movie where a they, buddy western where the Indian keeps waking up before him <laughs> and going ahead and then that, Carson wakes up and he's like where'd you go with my horse and he chases him <laughs> and I don't think I can even get into the purge about why that slides in the middle even though I. Th- didn't like what it did i think it was pretty consistent in what it did i think it kind of committed to what it was trying to do i just didn't like what that was but i sort of i sort of am i sort of felt okay about its uh decisiveness and (laughs) and felt like interview with the vampire uh was um sort of trying to do too many too many things at once between feeling like a biopic oh, yeah. like you said well it's a novel so yeah right to adapt the novel is to inherently do something that almost can't be done right right the the best version is sean penn's only good directorial effort so far mm-hmm. That's it has the, the, wild. the this <laughs> biopic quality it has this horror film type quality obviously because it involves gris- grisly vampires but it has it this, has this uh, family drama with two gay dads in it <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's got a a homoerotic vibe to it but then it also has this really weird um sensual tension between the character kirsten dunce plays claudia and brad pitt um, it's not really belabored on, but there mm-hmm. is some questionable scenes where you're questioning their intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's, you know, it just, I mean, to be alive forever certainly changes the gambit of the age of a body when it is committed to being undead versus, you know, like if someone is six or eight or however old she is, and then they live a hundred years as a vampire. Are they still treated as a six-year-old, or are they treated as a hundred and six-year-old? You know, this is kind of what right. Anne Rice's um, kind of erotic ethics it, were very fascinating at the time, and they still are very fascinating because they're not really grappled with because we don't have to grapple with them yet. Mm-hmm. But now science fiction is kind of putting into those roles where it's okay. Well, what if a six-year-old can upload herself into an AI unit that is a full-bodied person whether it's boy or girl or neither and then go have a sexual experience what are we going to do about that and that's kind yep. of the same sort of uh erotic ethics that Anne rice was getting into without i mean maybe she did know what she was kind of forecasting a lot of times horror mm. authors do get a sense of what they're forecasting but maybe she didn't know the way that she was forecasting it and yep. it is a very interesting question um that i think you know do you hold the novel completely separate from the movie or not? Because if you hold it with the movie, then you have to give it credit for 
it's philosophical questioning. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to give damsel credit for any of that, then you also have to give that to Interview with the Vampire, I think. And I think that's where we're kind of deviating. Because you're saying that you think damsel can make you look at a movie differently, which is kind of philosophical, right? You're looking right, at right. something differently because of something. Right. And I'm saying I think that what she did with her novel, more than the movie, does that. And so it's, are you taking the screenplay into into damsel or are you just holding damsel as you know like that's where it kind of breaks down into what are we really um going to give the rating for and how do we encapsulate this especially when it's based on something else it's like when we watch uh a marvel movie are we basing it on which uh comic books they might have pulled different villains and scenes from or are we basing it on its merit of its own are we basing it on character work? We tend to do all of those and none of yeah. those. It kind yeah. of depends on your background. And I think my background's yeah. just, I'm aware of Anne Rice's um, interesting conversations that she's brought up and very, um, you know, debatable things that she's brought up. And, and I think that that's just as fascinating as what Damsel does. I, I think it's more fascinating, to be honest. But I think that Damsel does do something worthwhile in finally making a western where you know the the boy is kind of it's kind of an ingrid goes west but (laughs) in the west where uh aubrey plaza's recast is uh robert pattinson where yeah we're like i think this is kind of creepy yeah and elizabeth olsen has switched out for mia wasikowska right so yeah i just think damsel used the the form in more interesting ways to illuminate some of some of its philosophy and ideas in a way that interview with the vampire didn't i don't i don't think that the filmmaking stands on its own two feet in quite the way quite the same way that damsel does i don't doubt that it has these ideas sort of embedded in it because it's source text is so rich with those ideas but the immediate experience i got from the film didn't without any knowledge of the book did not really lead me to wrestle wrestle with those in the kind of way that like i kind of want a movie to do danzel did kind of get me thinking about these western tropes i didn't what have... did it get you thinking in an original way I think so. These okay, characters okay. felt so original when, to me. When we get to the cabin. Yeah. And uh, Parson is behind the logs. Yeah. Pattinson is behind the outhouse. Right. And um, the the man comes out. What did you think? Did you already know what was up? or Or were you still waiting to find out? I had the sense that this film was uh, sort of off kilter enough that something something strange might happen but i really so did not know. i did not know okay be, i absolutely sure. knew going into that scene i, I what i was, was not expecting he just kept having a new story <laughs> right and that right. tooth that character of the mm-hmm. tooth with the money and the the tummy that hurts and just right yeah you, you know and i've got buttercup and you know it, right it was just or butterscotch was a buttercup or butterscotch I think it was butterscotch. Yeah, because yeah. it's her favorite candy besides Horace candy, but you can't name a 
horse whores candy because that's not polite for a lady or something mm-hmm. was his line um so i i knew that it was just this basic it's just kind of a plot device where you set up a chase and then the premise of the chase is false then there's a reckoning and then normally it ends but we're at the mm-hmm. halfway mark when this reckoning happened and like it was really funny because you parson shoots him in the back of the head because pattinson's behind the outhouse being a coward won't even peek out right. a second mm-hmm. and then he shoots him in the back of the head and he falls over and he's while he's going pee and he's still peeing as yeah. he's falling over and that you know it was humorous um they go on to blow up that cabin after a, a titular scene in which pattinson kills himself and that kind yep. of uh caps off him being a villain before he can redeem himself with his goofy charm because right. that goofy charm kept getting us through those earlier moments, I think, in a way that he he wouldn't have been a villain if we kept spending time with him. So it made sense to kind of kill him off. Yeah. But it's also, that was the strongest character. And now what are they going to do? Robert Pattinson was, yeah. yeah. And what are they going to do now? And, you know, it's, we're going to, I he needs help and, and she needs him to dig graves. And it's just a way of staying in the same place for a while. Yeah. You know, to me, that's a budget constraint. Budget constraint budget constraint <laughs> right i think it's it, it is probably abundantly clear that it was a constrained budget completed on this on a limited budget yeah i'm i, I guess i'm I guess. i'm glad it got made i just don't know how glad i am that it got made <laughs> <laughs> right, but it, you're but you're more glad or no you're the the, the they both got two and a halves i guess right so you're yes. equally glad that they yeah. got made i i'd say that i'm more fond of the the zellner brothers is that who made mm. it i'm more fond of them than i am of anyone that made the interview with the vampire but you, that's mainly just because the q a was charming with him where you know i began to feel for him empathetically right. instead of just judging his art and going eh. Right. It is always sort of satisfying to hear a director's one sentence summation of what they tried to do. And his was, we wanted to see what a bad breakup in a Western looks like, which in one sentence, you're like, that's great. I like that. But what I agree is what happened after the breakup. The thing is, we didn't get that they were in a relationship. (laughs) Right. So, you know, there's a lot of. I think that there's probably going to be a lot of people that think that they weren't ever in a relationship to begin with mm-hmm. and that they're going to go off on a tangent about that and saying how poignant it is and like the time's up me too movement where mm-hmm. it's coming at it from a different predication. So I, I do worry that it's maybe kind of the false prophet thing where they're pointing at something and saying it's something when it, I mean, it might present as that, but that's not what it was intended to be. And I, I think yeah. that they either should have, cut or belabored upon that opening scene where they're having that great time square dancing because that yeah. really threw off the whole tone of the movie that scene doesn't fit right unless you see it just as further leading you astray and thinking this is a happy relationship right i think that's what the purpose is, is... maybe i th- i think that maybe that's what they did on purpose to try to do that and i think that it failed i think that if you start with the pastor and the parson mm-hmm. and him wandering into the wilderness naked yeah and then the parson and uh getting woken up by patent or you know you cut to patents and then you have patents and wake parson up and then their journey 
then the film has more of a tone. Yeah. Then you can get away with the barrel guy and, and the, the deaths and the kitten and the spittoon a little bit more. But because they, they tried to make it a happy movie and then a sad movie and then like a morally questionable movie, like they just kept shifting and never committing. I, I didn't... It, it was kind of like, sorry to bother you. I was like, pick a point, make it. I don't mind if you keep wandering, but make one point for me. And sorry to bother you did make one point um, by the end of it. And it's like, <laughs> this one didn't make that one point. For me, I, I guess yeah. maybe you could argue that that Mia um, punching him in the face at the very end was right. the point mm-hmm. made, but I, I don't know that that's a good enough point for a narrative. That's more of the point of a character. And it didn't feel like a character piece yeah. because of her limited time with right. us on the screen. I think you could perhaps argue that while it's not particularly exciting, sort of the, the, the nothingness that happens in the second half of the film is kind of the point in defiance of the uh by the books ending of a western where a gal is saved by a hero cowboy the end right this, this supposes sure. that the hero is really not a hero at all and the female now has to just go on doing her thing whatever that might be and to figure things out there might not have been just enough substance to sort of make that back half um not in this movie worth, with, worth the time not but in this movie with this budget with these characters what I you're saying budget sounds is... great but i can't see like this sort of an approach working for that i see something more i mean probably longer probably in the two hour range I keep mm. having flashes of like Anne Hathaway, right? Where she's like <laughs> rescued and she doesn't want to be, but she's like kidnapped. She's like maybe mm. saddle strapped on the back of a horse, you know, sideways. This is, get, this like is gonna be gritty. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you know, she probably grabs a knife for the rifle off of the horse, falls off and shoots him, and, and starts her own journey. And then we go with her on a journey, build her character. This we arrive at a built character. She's a character that doesn't get lived in very much. Maybe that was just she didn't maybe she didn't have what it took to perform that character i don't know but i didn't feel anything that was like yeah this deserves to be a a piece of work here that that we should all see like i Mm. i wouldn't really recommend this i i don't think that very many people need to see it i think that if you saw kamiko is that the name of it right and you liked it a lot and you wanted to see what they do next go ahead and see it um if you really like mia or pattinson sure but otherwise i think that if you're a western fan or um kind of a genre fan mm-hmm. there's gonna be other things i'd rather point you to to like some cheap fun with oceans eight than to something like this yes. for for some sort of a cheap fun you know like watch the yeah. youtube video if someone uploads the cabin exploding um, watch that at least <laughs> yeah you know it maybe do a vod rental and just go to the middle where uh parsons behind the logs and then cut it off once they leave uh with tnt around his neck but otherwise there's just not much to chew on in the back half in particular i think the beginning too because the beginning's only good because of pattinson's character work mm. so unless you're you want to commit to the character yeah i i don't know yeah. it's 
it's one of those things where I'd be more interested to see a mini series about what this world is like mm-hmm. than I am to see what this world is like in an hour and a half or an hour and 45. I don't know. It felt yeah. really long, but I think it was kind of short. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree. I think I, I think I got more from the characters in, in themselves just inhabiting those landscapes in that world than you did. That did a lot for me, especially on a bigger screen. I think I would have I would have watched it just for that reason. I I think maybe I've seen too many westerns, or I've I have mm. a, maybe a good eye for location. Mm-hmm. where i knew that we weren't anywhere that was real yeah. because of the context of the coast because i recognized that coastline because i recognized the rocks because i recognized the type of trees in the forest i knew yeah. that this place didn't exist yeah so i was pulled out of it whereas i understand making a creative choice like that and i could even see myself wanting to make that creative choice where where I, I'm having a conversation about what it was really like to be someone back then in the East and that mm. you're traveling West and that this is what your idea of the West is. It's this Pacific coast. It's this beautiful thing. It's this beautiful forest. It's these beautiful rocks. Yeah. But it's really not that. It's the moments at the end. It's those moments in between with the campfire and um, you know, running into the idiot brother who decides that you're going to be his wife now. And, you know, it's... It's the rough shot. It's big not, swaths it's not of land where there isn't much of anything except some dumb there's people. There's nothing, right? <laughs> there's there's basically nothing. There's the town where uh, they don't have pilsner; they only have whiskey. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then there's the cabin in the woods, and then there's the coast with the boat. And that's yeah. kind of it. Yeah. And I, I I almost love that as a short story, as a short mm-hmm. film. Like, as a yeah. short film, it could probably be really good. But I, I would agree. I just, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I vibe with it as a feature. I don't think that I, I'm capable of it as a feature. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> All right. Shall we? That is a wrap on Damsel. We will be moving on to... Dracula? Let's do Dracula. There. <laughs> All right. First of our three vampire movies done. Interview with the vampire. Moving on to Dracula. Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 film. Knee-jerk reaction. I feel completely incapable and uncomfortable criticizing this movie. Love it. I would like to give it compliments. I would like to say that some of the stuff didn't work for me, but I don't even know what didn't. I just know that some of it didn't. You kind of want to do like a slow clap or something for it? Yeah. yeah, Or just a really (laughs) smug lean in the back and slouch (laughs) smile. You know, like just wow. Gary Oldman, wow. Keanu Reeves somehow being redeemable by the end, wow. Monica Bellucci, <laughs> <laughs> this is top tier criticism, folks. This is top tier. <laughs> Sometimes wow is the best word and the only word. I do think it's kind of a movie that's somewhat critic proof in a way because I think the best things about it are the craft itself i think i have less to talk about thematically um character wise than i do about the images themselves But do you even feel like you can talk about the craft or do you feel like you can just mention the things that were done well i would 
describe that as talking about the craft. Yeah, okay, then I can talk <laughs> about the craft too. The editing, the set decoration, the editing, the editing, mm-hmm. the editing, <laughs> also the editing. Anything else? Bad editing. <laughs> wow. What I I think that um the eyes the the way that they were able to elicit the eyes constantly and and there there would kind of be these slow fades of the eyes that we later see in in the next uh, vampire movie for a moment and it was kind of a callback to this movie for me which mm-hmm. is a, in fact a callback to the predecessor of Dracula the original Dracula uh, it just evokes this sense of unnatural dread mm. you, you know it's not even like i can't criticize it it's just this is how i felt it's a movie that made me feel sometimes it was a movie that made me feel bored because it was so long but it was, it, long. it was making me feel bored because i was waiting for its greatness and i knew that it still had so much to give gary oldman's performance was so good but nothing topped the opening shot just like for me nothing topped the opening shot in interview with the vampire where they're mm. just silhouettes against this beautiful, bright lit background. I think you said it was blood red or red or yeah. Oh, absolutely! At the beginning, the blood, the impaler yes. sequence. Yeah, so, blood so red. So what, what yeah. color is the back there? Bright red. Bright red. Okay, so absolutely. it's bright red, and there's just black silhouettes. Can't see anything besides absolutely. people getting stabbed through the chest and then impaled. Right. It's just a a fascinating motion capture. It's like the best Frank Miller comic book you could imagine. Yeah. For two minutes. It's just right. there. And it's probably shorter than that, but I want to say two minutes because I just liked it so much. I wanted to find it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I think there is always sort of the question about movies retelling classic tales. Do they have something new to say about it? If we've already heard the story of Dracula so many of times, this doesn't take any liberties with the story. Of Dracula as at least in its broad strokes I think what makes this specifically exciting is just literally not knowing what color he might use next what angle the camera might take next there's so much diversity in how each frame is composed that you're you feel suspense even though you know exactly where this is going you know the story of Dracula or at least most people do you... It's kind of like, you know Apocalypse Now. I mean, you don't, but the listeners <laughs> yeah, do. Right. They've seen it. They know it. But every time you watch it, you still... You're filled with this sense of awe. And it's it's almost like every Francis Ford Coppola movie, you see his fingerprints and his smudges on every frame. Every single thing seems meticulously done. And whether or not you agree with the decision is up to you. But you can't say that he didn't think about it mm-hmm. and i think that's very unique i think that he's one of those few directors where you can't say he didn't think about what he was doing right um and i i think that the one thematic detail that i didn't have enough time with i didn't find clarity and i i didn't i wanted more clarification on which speaks to its artistry was anthony hopkins in the very beginning is the narrator mm-hmm. he's also the priest then he is Van Helsing. <laughs> and I feel like there's something there that I'm not getting about the relationship of the priest to Van Helsing. Um, mm. be- because uh, Gary Oldman's Dracula stabs the cross 
and it bleeds and that turns him into a vampire when he drinks out of the chalice yeah um, and, and i feel like i'm missing whatever link there was and i'm sh- i'm sure that um i'm either overstating it or that it was very plain and i glossed over it but there there has to be something there where anthony hopkins character is both the the person who brings about the possibility for him to become dracula and he's the one who inevitably brings about the way for him to stop right i can't say i thought much about that linkage but it is too obvious of a of a connection to have been you know happy convenience or something like that yeah, but happy it's, accident so um, it's like you know there's more there but you don't know what yeah and that's yeah. kind of it's like this you know like just a, a spot on your skin that that's thicker than the others and you just keep rubbing it and you're like yeah what is this about what is right. this i about? think i think movies can really put forth good questions and bad questions questions that you really don't care about and ones that you just wouldn't mind revisiting yeah. and that's the kind of thing that would make watching it again exciting you're like i don't think i quite figured that out but i'm happy to go through it again and try to see if i can tease it out this time around yeah yeah i i'd I'd love to revisit it and i don't want to do it yet because i won't have as much fun as i could get to have right see i think i would enjoy it just as much on the the second go around i think i think it's safe to say that i enjoyed this maybe more than you did i think Um, i think maybe you did enjoy it more than i did but i i'd say that i loved its artistry so much that i think that we ranked it similarly but maybe you found more enjoyment in it where i found more respect for it if that makes sense like you felt more of an emotional gravitation towards it right i i don't know that i felt that emotional gravitation but i felt just an immense well of respect and just awe at this auteur he's he is an auteur and it's a shame that all he does is make wine i'm sure it's great wine (laughs) yeah exactly i can't afford it uh i thank his daughters for making movies but mm-hmm. i'd really talented family if they're, if they're uh, could do a cool well i don't know if they're both his daughters but if they're related to him <laughs> i wouldn't mind him getting back in the game yeah uh i think the use of color alone is enough to make me want to watch it again so what was it done with the color full color blind can't see what's happening with the color that what's is happening. absolutely Describe something that should be considered when you watch this movie is being colorblind might detract from the experience i think but when we both gave it the same rating exactly so yeah, it's the emotional great. appeal that's cool um, so maybe the colors bringing about this emotional appeal for you right so i think when people describe colorful films people use that a lot like it's a simple word you know people will say oh you know i love the color people think about movies like moonlight moonlight or something like la la land where you have really? say four primary colors in a single frame four ladies in the street dancing you have yellow blue green red people are excited by that use of color all in one frame didn't have a clue you don't think people talked about that movie as colorful i maybe remember... they did maybe i didn't hear it maybe i tuned out of it i don't know i just yeah. not seeing it you don't think about it right i mean i think about it i think about color but i don't necessarily think about it in the sense of films or i'll ask something very specific like when i'm watching a steven spielberg movie and i'm with someone i will ask them if that coat is red all the time right just because i need to for clarification yeah that makes sense is this a callback right i (laughs) think schindler's list (laughs) i think it's i don't have great evidence to support this but i think it's 
uh, I think a more popular use of color is to involve many colors within a single frame to sort of um, impress with the array of color. Whereas I think there are more shots here where the shot itself is defined by a single color and the sequence of shots throughout the film change color. So is it an oversaturation of color? These are highly saturated. Colors, so I've, I've sure. heard that that's what makes um, sound of, or not, maybe it's not the sound of music, but definitely the Wizard of Oz. Oh, so yeah, super saturated. Because they would over exaggerate to such a length that, um, that depending on how you projected the film, people have entirely different versions of the original film based on how many times it was shown and through what camera. Or the right. color saturation because it's been played so many times Could or really not so vary. many times is super variant. So is this one of those yeah. like the Wizard of Oz where it's just oversaturated and it ends up playing into every single part of everything in the frame? I believe that's yeah. The that's depth of those colors can absolutely, I think, sort of um, extend their impact. So but, did, was that what was happening to the silhouettes in the beginning? Were were they being affected by that? absolutely you watch okay. some of those shadows in the castle and it looks like something from nosferatu right okay. those are just those are just striking black and white compositions and those are sort of the colors that define that frame mm -hmm. and i think in a, when you have a story that people already know you have to build suspense into the movie in a different way and what yes. you never really know in this movie is sort of what the next frame might look like we start with this frame of vlad the impaler having clearly been successful in his impaling with a you know line Let of carcasses pile on top of each other on a pipe exactly <laughs> this you know massive swath of people on stakes with this bright red background and then i think about these later shots in the film where dracula is in bright green and he takes the form of this green smoke that looks more snake-like than okay. anything else he looks like in the film versus so, the hold on. stark what, what is his um what is his skin pallor i guess in it's the film. more of that translucent white classical vampire. okay so it's not green because i was picking up on the translucence that i kind of saw in like tom cruise's face in certain scenes in interview with the vampire where right. kind of the veins are popping through so because yeah. you said the green smoke, I was curious if he had kind of a sickly complexion um, for yeah. people that could see color or not. Because right, for me, exactly, he just yeah. looked vampiric, not necessarily sickly. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. When you first see him in the castle in old man human form, I guess, kind of the Nosferatu look. I, that's that's so the by white the end sickly power. It seems to be that what he'd done is not fed for some time. Right. Because it seems to yeah. be that when he feeds, he becomes young. Absolutely. And that's where we get young Gary Goldman yes. doing his thing, which I think is some of the less, uh, th th those were a little less interesting to me. Um, but I think they they do drive the plot forward and allow I, I mean, you to sort of. I mean, they were less visceral, but I don't know. I found it fascinating the, the way that he swept winona up and how other characters reacted to winona being swept up yeah and i do think that there's value in juxtaposition of just yeah. seeing natural skin tones and sort of the film reminding you of what makes all this other stuff so visceral and how it's about that when it goes this is creature. what life oh it's great 
it's real and good. And we only get full creature <laughs> when he's young. Mm-hmm. Which implies that maybe he can't shift to that devouring predator without having already feasted on some blood. Right. Maybe that takes some... Full energy. creature, you mean like the wolf-like yes. creature who Which devours Lucy. Which is very Lucy. interesting, right? Very interesting yeah. that they went with that wolf depiction of... Uh, because the wolf nowadays is very much a juxtaposition to the vampire, right? Yeah, you it's, see it's wolves versus are, vampires are, are separate from the vampire, and they're they're at least part of a different faction. Perhaps they have a negotiation in place. Perhaps they don't. Perhaps mm-hmm. they've been warring for hundreds of years. It kind of depends on your film and what you're picking. Uh, I think the underworld probably did it the best, if not True Blood. Mm-hmm. And then you know, there's that really piss poor try with uh, Twilight films. They try. I didn't read the books. It's probably better there. Um, but you, you, it, it's kind of when they leave the explanation out and you're just provoked. I yeah. think that that's where, where kind of the best uh, monstrosity comes from. That's, yeah. that's kind of what made me... Like originally when I was younger and I was reading Harry Potter for like the first time or maybe the second... I didn't know whether or not Voldemort was a vampire because mm. of his depiction, because of his, the way that feasting on other people's life is bringing him back to life because of this snake thing allegory. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, and they don't, she didn't explain it to you. Um, and, and this movie kind of doesn't explain to you. It doesn't hold your hand. Yeah. But it does take you where he goes and through what he does. And it doesn't yeah. mire itself down with, well, how did they get the earth in the boxes? And right. how did he get the shipping manifest done? You know, right. it starts out with kind of the nitty gritty where Keanu is taken away yeah. through that nitty gritty. And then we never go back to it. Right. We, we never get back to the, un, until it's a plot point and it's what port is he in? What port is he going to? How can we catch up? We take the horses. Right. They never right. get, so it. I really respect that about it. It just kept chugging, yeah. chugging, 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 kind of like the train they were on. Yeah, I think that's usually the sign to me of, like, just good filmmaking, good craft, is the whatever suspension of disbelief is involved is pretty easy. So easy that you're not even really thinking about it. You're just kind of going with it. Even if, in hindsight, you realize, how did the dirt get in the boxes? You're just with it. Yeah. The, the filmmaking convinces you to not worry about it. And more than that, I didn't go, oh, I won't worry about that because I'm convinced. Yeah. I went, I didn't do anything. I didn't right. question it for a moment until it was over. Yeah. I didn't have one moment of disbelief until Van Helsing becomes involved. And that was yeah. nothing to do with the form. That was just my own background with mythology and me going like, so Van Helsing's like a Freudian lecturer in the halls of england but it's kind of like a german yeah. parlor lecture series like what's good you know and then i just went down the rabbit hole of things that i already know and i was like okay so van helsing's german and anthony hopkins can really say yeah really well and i re- <laughs> you know it was just kind of like that apparently <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it was just kind of a things that interested me personally got in my way of uh where i was questioning it where otherwise I, I never had a moment of disbelief outside my own conjecture yeah. to myself about what was happening, but not because of the form, just right. because of myself and my own background. Right. Um, I do think that this is 
the the sexier of the two movies we've, we've talked about so far interview with the vampire uh and dracula i feel um, comfortable saying it's sexier we have andy newton and then a lot of male characters in the previous <laughs> one and this one we have three of dracula's wives one played by monica bellucci yep and then we have winona Ryder and winona Ryder's friend i don't know her name off the top of my head nor the actress's name that depicts her yeah, I can tell you. And then we have Gary Oldman licking a shaving blade after it nicks Keanu. So I can confidently right. say this is definitely a, a more <laughs> sleek, if not more sexy. Yeah, I think it's certainly they they certainly both have sexuality like there is just immediately apparent. But I, I as think any that vampire eroticism film does. lives within the vampiric genre because it, it is inherently about you drinking the liquid out of someone else right which is very intimate if not erotic yeah i think interview with the vampire the sexuality felt more implied to me than it did in dracula which definitely felt more, more implied it, it was a lot of um homoeroticism implied yeah. specifically mm-hmm. and then there were mm-hmm. those few notions with uh kristen kirsten dunst and and uh louis or, or brad pitt's louis that she she does a lot more with that weird child sexuality in in her other right. books than than that specifically but um other than those brief moments there's really not much i guess maybe the end with the the possible joyride about to happen with christian slater perhaps but not right not much other than that whereas this is just lust 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 you exactly know? and i I don't think it was intentional, and it's definitely not over the head. But I almost think there that it can be. You can find some some humor in some of it. When I think about Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker being held captive, held captive. I'm putting that in air quotes by Dracula's three beautiful uh, vampire brides. One of which is Monica Bellucci. Exactly. In 1992. Exactly. Poor, poor him exactly poor boy <laughs> <laughs> he comes back to winona rider talking no, 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 off no he um he calls her gets to uh a city escaping. i i want to say it's constantinople but it definitely wasn't it was somewhere else yeah. and he sends a letter where she has to get on a ship and come marry him immediately right right and and she sends this letter to uh to gary oldman's character and vlad um and i think it's vlad right yeah yeah okay. well, i don't know if that's his name at that point i don't remember i know who you're talking yes. about <laughs> well i just want to make sure they do as well, right right dear listeners <laughs> um so she gets on the ship and and um goes to marry him immediately and then when she gets back she's having the same sectional desires towards a different man and and you know i i think that maybe either francis had something to say there because i believe he wrote and directed it or no no it was a different writer so so it was either the writer or the or francis that had something to say about lust outside of marriage perhaps or Mm. or perhaps that they think the form had something to say i do think that that was interesting how it kept coming up because when she when her friend is engaged to carrie ellis from the princess bride yeah fantastic role for him yep uh one of his few good roles yep um she immediately is overcome with desire for other for any man's blood right mm. 
but he doesn't necessarily know that, and neither do the men that she's encountered. Yeah. So it's kind of this interesting play on desire and are you responsible for your desire or not? Right. Which I did find interesting. But I, I do want to bring it back to the ship. When she's called through Keanu's uh, letter to go on the ship, mm. what happens to the color there? Because I have to imagine it's an entire juxtaposition to the to the uh, blood red at least in the beginning. When Winona Ryder is going to meet so, Jonathan. So do you remember those ship scenes where on the they're map? cast on the, uh, no, they're cast on the ocean and there's oh, the storms happening? Oh, literally on the ship. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I think that mm-hmm. it was her on the ship, but perhaps it, the first scene would have been Dracula coming with the Earth. Yeah, like, uh, well, in contrast to so many scenes which have, you know, relatively bright reds, whites, greens, those are darker they look more like dungeons than the you know so are they like a palette a cleanser almost for the coming scenes yeah a little bit kind of um, like a radish after a good taco exactly yeah. um they yeah they aren't quite as uh as overpowering um okay. for sure in contrast to the rest interesting so they're not overpowering as scenes themselves because i, I, I took so. the impression mm-hmm. that like the clouds and the sea were kind of like this oppressive shadow palette on the ship. That's interesting. I I was not as awestruck by that mix of color. I really like ship fairing or okay. sea fairing films, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, yeah. I want more of this. Right. You, you <laughs> some of those shots you're seeing him below deck. You know, as he's yes. kept in like a box. Well, you or never see like him that, right? on the deck. It's very clear that yeah. these are miniatures in a production pool studio, right? Where they're just turning all the lights off, uh, turning the wave machine on, right. know, having the hose spray water down, and and just kind of capturing what they need to capture. And then it's it's clear that they just kind of probably did a day of that, and right. then they cut that back in. But the way that Coppola shoots it and the way that it's edited in, yeah, make me not question it for a moment right to and me that's it's probably it's, more driven by performance it's performance and to me it's almost movement within the frame versus color the sort mm, of the rocking back turmoil of the ship sort of reflecting the turmoil of the scene right the form yeah. interacting with the content there oh yeah yeah definitely the coming turmoil when he's coming definitely and then the, exactly. the turmoil when he's leaving he's not just sailing on clear seas right yeah. it's it's a well, storm <laughs> the, the the thing is that's because he made the storm exactly exactly which is an interesting uh, under undercurrent there because he mm. he made the storm to begin with he was the one that went into battle he was the one that almost died yeah. he's the reason why winona rider almost for why winona rider's character at that point in time killed herself and now yeah. she's been reborn, and he sees, I believe he sees her in Keanu's locket, and then he traps Keanu and goes to get her, and then tries to flee back and, and marry her and make her one of him and all these things. Uh, I, I don't know if he has to make a vampire with the chalice or not. I don't really know what that whole thing is. I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I can't say that ending where they're looking at the beautiful portrait above them. Yeah, yeah. Um, And he's holding her, whereas in the portrait she was holding him. Mm, it yeah. It is a very, yeah. it's a beautiful um, film take on the yin-yang idea or, you know, yeah. the balance idea or 
um, things that come to pass always come to pass and they always reverse them. You know, they're, they're always there and they always right. reverse and they always go back to the way that they were. It's just a, it's an, it's a beautiful depiction of that. Yeah. Yeah. Any favorite scenes off the top of your head? Anytime Anthony Hopkins was dealing with Carrie Elvis's bride to be. You liked him quite a bit. I really liked the way that he was handling her and the yeah. men at the same time. Yeah. Because they yeah. were trying to be chivalrous and he was like, stop being a fucking idiot, basically right. the whole time. He was pretty entertaining. And I, I did like the scene in particular where they're trying to, or they, they, uh, they interact with or encounter Lucy in her crypt. She's in that stark white dress. Van Helsing and him and the couple other guys. Is Lucy the other character? No, Lucy is her friend. Okay. I, I can't remember that actress's name, but I, I don't think I even know it, but I just remember that character's name, Lucy. Lucy. Gotcha. It's after she's died, I think. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And they, they're in like oh, her crypt. Is that, is that when he said, before that he says... Well, I think we should cut her head off and burn it. There's exactly. Yeah, exactly. Van so Helsing. Amazing. It's great stuff. <laughs> and they're in this crypt, and she sort of descends the stairs in this big white. It almost it looks like a wedding gown, even though it's actually like a funeral gown. And they're preparing to, you know, drive a stake into her and cut her head off. And well, she... they they already have opened the coffin to do so. And, right and they're turning around and she's approaching them. right and she's approaching the guy from the princess bride mm -hmm. and you see Carrie that seduction Ellis. in that moment where he's almost like all right baby let's do this and i you know it's just another little moment that kind of uh that showcases the power of seduction like it's a super small thing and it's kind of funny yeah, so, um, so this but movie, it's also terrifying at the, the same this time movie is very much about seduction and manipulation yeah and, and um kind of if you are a creature that is just built in with that and you've never really questioned it are you immoral or not mm. and I, I think by the end we certainly find it to be that you are immoral but right. I, I do think that it is an interesting kind of perennial question of people that can get by it through seduction are they immoral you know it really depends on the scenario be, because they're you know if someone is manipulated by someone being beautiful maybe that is fine you know maybe they needed that lesson and maybe that person needed that opportunity you know it's and, mm. and, but there's certainly the opposite of that where it's the worst thing in the world which is right. what's depicted in the movie by the end of it for sure right but it, it is that interesting striking conversation because we I don't think at any point we can ever make a clear-cut decision of, no, he's evil. No, she's evil. No. I, I want to, but like I don't think I can ever say Winona Ryder is behaving immorally, even though if that was a normal movie without Dracula, I would be like, yeah, she was immoral. Right. She just got married and now she's cheating. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> straight. for some reason, it's this format where I'm like, you know, like I actually believe it. And what's interesting is that it's not just the monster format, because, like, in Twilight, I didn't buy it for a second, and I thought that it was all bullshit. Mm -hmm. So it's something about how Coppola brings this to light, and then how it's edited. His mm -hmm. editor did such a good job. It's amazing. Like, what did you think? Did, did you even notice, or... 
Oh, no, I, I w would completely agree. And I think there's uh, a pretty satisfying um, diversity of editing. You know, some of the dissolves are super affecting versus quick cuts. Um, I think, I don't know who the editor is off the top of my head uh, or, or if it's one of his regulars or not. But um, I, I believe that they did precious few other movies. Yeah. I, I looked it up and I've forgotten all of it. But I do remember my visceral reaction was, that's all they did? Yeah, they made a count, and they're like, "That's it." Was it. Either I'm that done. Or the writer. I'm it gonna was retire at the top. Either the writer did a, an amazing smorgasbord of of things, or the editor did, and one of them went on to do almost nothing and then retired or passed away. I didn't research enough. It's called retiring at the top. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, I I don't have much more to say on Dracula. I loved it, and I think that everyone should see it. Uh, how about you, Michael? Final thoughts. Only thing I would bring up is any connections between the two. Any connections between Interesting. One, the, my immediate thought was that, um, was the idea of mourning between the two. Dracula, in a way, I can see as a, a sort of anti-hero, right? At the, at the very beginning, he loses his beloved Elisabetta to suicide, over miscommunication and condemns himself to eternity to try and reconnect with her. I think you, that's a you powerful just idea. To me every problem I've had with energy with the Phoenix High. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that very well might be, and I don't even know if this is that interesting of a connection. But I think Dracula is is not terribly different from brad pitt in his morning i think dracula is a bit more active in resolving no it's his, yeah it's definitely his... that archetypal um you are a victim of circumstance what how and what can you do about that as the story continues on as time turns yeah i think that's kind of just not just dracula not just um that that interview with the vampire i think that's any vampire movie is you were a victim because you've been turned into a vampire yeah now you won't die unless you choose or you're very stupid <laughs> what are you gonna do about that right and i i think that what happens in interview with the vampire is a lot stupider than what happens in dracula <laughs> i would agree i think there's another ending to this dracula movie that involves dracula getting her back and how satisfying that would be for somebody he did get her back. right but i mean him not just dying the way he oh, does you, you if mean there was kind of a full happy ending he a went. triumphant note right that is that is leading into more of an anti-hero type trope right well, where I'll despite this the horror the, the havoc he has wreaked mm -hmm. i would still be kind of like Fuck yeah, dude. You got her back after so, all that. Let me pitch you the ending. <laughs> they get back. They heal. Everyone leaves. Uh, Van Helsing drags Keanu Reeves' character away. About a year passes because it's so long ago that it takes about a year to get back. Um, but they're they're mortal now. They're happy. She's just had a kid. They're, they're holding the baby together. It's that nice Disney shot. Yeah. And then Keanu takes all Van Helsing's weapons and he shoots this great wooden stake through the heart 
of Gary Oldman, through the heart of Winona Ryder, and through the head of the baby, and just kills them all. That is a pretty gnarly image. That's how I would end it. If it was Hope you enjoy that, listeners. Because <laughs> <laughs> they took everything from him. <laughs> they took his job. They took his wife. They took his possible child. It could have been his child. We don't know. That is the real deal. <laughs> you have really followed that to its logical conclusion. <laughs> I feel good about it. I don't it. think I can top that. That character that is... goes on to be the immortal John Wick. I think we have found the best possible ending to Dracula. (laughs) A story retold for hundreds of years. (laughs) Did you guys know John Wick is Dracula? (laughs) We're on to something here. I don't think I have additional thoughts on Dracula. I I think you you just gave us great additional thoughts (laughs) that I asked you. And that I didn't have any and you gave us some. So I think we're good there. I think now we should probably talk about We Own the Night. And then build mm. that into our last vampire movie. Because I, I think okay. that Dracula builds into We Own the Night builds into that last um, vampire movie. So Let's start right there. In what way does We Own the Night, a crime movie directed by James Gray, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Mark Wahlberg, Robert Duvall, and... Eva Mendez. Eva Mendez. In what ways is this related to Dracula? What way isn't it related to Dracula? Right, because uh, Joaquin Phoenix's family, he turns his back on them. Uh, in the beginning of Dracula, he turns his back on the church. Mm-hmm. Why? Because of a girl, who's kind of the fulcrum of the stakes that Joaquin's character has. The whole it's Eva Mendez's character, and then what happens to Mark Wahlberg makes him double back. So it's it's. It is different, but it, it's very much the same of it's this anti-hero that we end up rooting for. Because in moments of Dracula, you find yourself rooting against Keanu, rooting for Gary Oldman's yeah, character. For to sure. be, because she seems like she's genuinely happy, and we forget for moments that she's married to him and all these things. And I, I think that it's very comparable because the title is We Own the Night. It is about who is making their living at, at night, whether it's the nightclub, whether it's busting these crimes at night, whether it's shipping in whatever you're shipping in, and you don't even view it as crime, you just view it as revenue, as um, the the secondary father character does. Yeah. I believe he was Eastern European, perhaps Russian. I, I can't really recall um, specifically what that nationality within that film was that it was fulcrumed on. I think it was Russian. Russian? Right? Okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if it was Eastern European, perhaps like Czechoslovakian or, or something, but it, yeah. it's definitely the, they call it the fur trade. And what they're, right. what, what we find out they're doing, spoilers, <laughs> folks, is by the end we find out that they are putting, um, I believe it was just 100% cocaine um, into a foul fur with a chemical where it binds in such a way that you can't notice it. And perhaps it was undetectable to dogs. I don't remember if they got into that. But then they run it through water, and they rub their hand on it, and the cocaine comes out. Right, that's how it separates, yeah. And and, it, and uh, the secondary father character to Joaquin calls it a, or even first father character, where his own father, Robert Duvall's character, is almost a secondary father that he hates. Yeah, yeah. Um, calls it the fur trade. Right. So it seems as if he's not viewing it as him trying to do something illegal. 
It's just him trying to make a good living for his family and trying to take care of the people he cares about. Whereas the people beneath him seem to have this vendetta and vindictiveness and this maliciousness. And that's what it is that brings about the events that make Joaquin turn from being someone who is against his family, which I would equate to being against the church like Dracula is into kind of this reverse Dracula where he's all of a sudden doing the right thing. Um, But whereas in Dracula, we're kind of rooting for um, Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder to get together. And they do. This is kind of the opposite where they dissolve because of him making the right choice. He loses Ava Mendes. Right. I think despite it being sort of, sort of a triumphant, ending it is bittersweet and really the greatest satisfaction i got from the movie was seeing joaquin phoenix with the eva mendez character i shouldn't say greatest satisfaction maybe the 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 most emotionally involved i got was when i saw those two together because they're they're both so powerful and so they're capable i think that each actor is capable of creating the intimacy of a moment that doesn't exist unless they're part of it. Whereas Mark Wahlberg is very much an action star that can make me believe that an event is happening. Joaquin and Ava can make me believe an emotion is happening. And when both of them are interacting with each other, I don't doubt for a second what they're feeling. I agree. Whether she's feeling love or anguish, it's it's like the whole movie of Dracula. I didn't question it till it was over in Dracula, and I didn't question it at all. In this yeah, movie. I didn't ever not yeah. believe it. Not yeah, I think it's 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 kind of ironic that Dracula, Interview with the Vampire, two movies that are really sort of set into motion because of a loss that I never really felt. I felt tremendously in We Own the Night. Yes, at the end when but but the, it's the, opposite, the central right? relationship that I have come to be so involved with has um, come at the at the expense of um joaquin phoenix's um change of heart but it's it's set into motion not by loss but by um gain it's mark Wahlberg's Hmm. promotion oh it brings about the loss right not the loss that brings about anything so right right i mean it's kind of an interesting an interview with the vampire no you're you're absolutely right i'm just saying it's a very interesting plot juxtaposition where and instead of the trope that we'd seen not that this trope is a bad thing in interview with the vampire and dracula where where it's lost driving it is in fact success that goes about to drive the loss of these characters yeah why does mark Wahlberg get shot because he was promoted and he chose to go raid the nightclub that his brothers had right well why did he know for certain that this person was at his brother's it seems to be because of Joaquin's reaction to that. And then right. what does Joaquin do? He does everything that he that goes against his nature so far. Right. And he does everything he can to help his dad's friend get what they need to actually put these guys away. Right. And that doesn't go so well. Right. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts on that scene, that specific scene where he has the um, bag over his head? They take those sharp turns and they end up at the uh, drug den, the first drug den that we encounter. 
Oh, I think it's the most gripping scene in the movie. I don't agree, but I want to. Would Would you place the car chase? Yes. Fair enough. I I was certainly most concerned for Joaquin Phoenix in that scene. I think I think the car chase w- was. Uh, yeah, no, was more I was definitely startling. concerned more about his family members than him. Yeah, because yeah, his father I, I, and the, I and the think other car. that when yeah. you watch enough movies, perhaps like we have, yeah, based on the camera angle of how they're depicting Joaquin, we know it's not his death scene. Right. We know that we're on the ride with him and that we are looking at other people that are going to die. Yeah. Whereas in that scene, they certainly do shoot Joaquin and that first drunk den scene. We don't know if he's going to make it, but if you knew how far into the movie you were and how long it was. If you checked the runtime. I I was, I didn't recall whether or not he had something get broken. You know, I was actually interested in his stakes, but I knew that he would be fine. That's why I, I love that scene so much is like despite knowing he has to to survive for this to go anywhere, the filmmaking somehow convinced me to be concerned for him. Yeah. Right? That's just sort and of I, the I miracle the, the of concern the work. Yeah. Pinnacled for me, not when they were interrogating him and, and found out that he had the bug in his lighter. Yeah. The height of the scene is when the cops come in. And they're about to shoot him, and he's the one helping them. Right. That mm-hmm. was a the way that that was shot. Just gave me the deepest scare of like my own deepest scare. Like I'm, yeah, I'm always terrified that, you, you know, like you're gonna get pulled over by a cop, and they're gonna misinterpret something, and you're gonna get shot. Right. And that was happening on the screen. Right. And how did he get out of it? He put himself in the hospital for three months by jumping yeah. out of a two-story window, landing on his back on a fence. Yeah. This is not a James Bond exit. No. This is <laughs> sheer survival instinct. I am throwing myself out this window in a supremely unglamorous fashion, and it's incredibly moving. <laughs> yeah. Moving or just... I, I think flo- I was floored. I was just, yeah. I was like him. I was just laying there on the pavement. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think in contrast to Dracula, everything that's impressive about the form is is completely embedded in the narrative. It's not showy. It's not conspicuous in any way. And I think that has to do with narratives that we're unfamiliar with versus ones we are familiar with right with dracula we know this narrative the suspense the satisfaction it's more important that that come from the craft itself james gray i think about like doing something in a bit more of a classical mode where there are there are satisfying shots there is like supreme craftsmanship in something like the chase scene but it's 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 in service of the story, mm-hmm. unlike Dracula, where mm-hmm. I think the the narrative is sort of assumed because it's been here for hundreds of years, and the yeah. priority is the craft itself. Um, yeah. So I, I I do think that you're right, but I I don't want that to understate the fact that. Just because it's not showy doesn't mean it doesn't show. Absolutely. I, I, I think, think that there are scenes where 
there are certain scenes where I thought it did show. In particular, ones that come to mind are the car chase we already talked about, the end where Joaquin Phoenix and the rest of the cops are in the uh, field of I don't know what you call that. It's it's kind of like a wheat I, field I or it was something. Wheat, but it I think me, it's wheat. You made me think of that that famous scene, and I believe the cover of the movie, "The Wind That Shakes the Barley." Yeah, the yeah. whole time I was just like, "This reminds me of Kelly and Murphy." Right, but it's like there there there's a narrative reason for them to be there. Right, it's cover, it's camouflage versus the bright red backdrop behind Vlad the Impaler's stakes. That is for and that amazing effect. opening scene. Yeah, exactly. Um, every sort of crafts, every sort of choice behind the craft in We Own the Night is is really grounded in a rationale for that like particular world do you think that's genre or do you think that's what do you think drove that because i found it very while it was similar to the lost city of zed or z depending on your nationality i suppose and while i found it similar to the immigrant it felt more fully fleshed out and whole of its own genre than either of those two for me think i would agree um i don't know that it has purely i don't know that i would attribute it purely to it being a genre film um well both the other movies are genre films as well so it's not just that they're genre films it's it's i i almost wonder if the um smothering of quality in this cast Mm. Or, or perhaps if James is really familiar with either of these films or this um, background of the city, mm. that it just has this smothering, down-to-earth, non-questionable perfection to it that yeah. I, I think that is missing from The Immigrant and The Lost City of Z. And I like those movies or love those movies. I You know, it kind of depends on the day and, and all that. But... yeah. Um, I, I don't think that either of those movies has worse cinematography. So mm, it's not a cinematographic yeah. problem here. It's yeah, And it's not really a problem. It's I don't even know. What is it that he got so right with Leon the Night? Was it the pace? Was it just the narrative pace of the of the ploy? Where we, we are built up and we really believe in this couple and we love this couple and then we watch it all fall apart and we watch it fall apart for really noble reasons and the thing about the immigrant and the lost city of z is that they are almost like damsel they subvert the entire genre's uh perspective so that you we don't get that fully fleshed out satisfaction in the way that we do with we on the night where at the end i'm heartbroken and immensely satisfied and i don't think i am with the lost city of z and i there's a little bit of satisfaction in the immigrant, but not not to the same degree at all. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I, I mean, I would completely agree. I think if I those are the only three movies of his that I've seen, and I would definitely place this as number one. Yes, which I think you would too. Yes, yes, I yeah. I would place this off the top of my head mm-hmm. in the top ten of I think it was two thousand eight, the year that that came out. Yeah. And I am aware that that was a crazy good year for movies. But yeah. I would find a way to make it number 10. I would push yeah. whatever it took to push out. Because I 
just those performances. I don't think we get Duvall that good again. At least yeah. I can't think of it. I, I don't think we get Mark as down to earth again. Yeah. I, you, you know, like I'd, I'd say Mark's best movie probably since that was probably Pain and Gain. And that's a movie you either like or you immensely hate. And I understand yeah. both takes and I'm just in the camp that likes it. Yeah. And I also like Jumanji. Great you know, movie. I'm just one of those people that's going to like those shiny gossamer m- mockumentaries of themselves. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's kind of ironic that you could probably call this, like, of those three, his genre movie and maybe the other two, like, his period films. But the there are the genres, night, it, though. Right. The, uh, uh, the, the expedition genre and the uh, the immigration genre, right? Welcome to America or coming to America. Um, there, there is a, a bunch of those movies where it's like a, a British person or an Australian person or vice versa, America to a Britain or, right, you know, but, there's a whole genre of these pictures. But like you said, I don't, it's not a genre in this sense. It's not a genre film in, in this sense that others are, because like you said, they're, they're sort of interested in, um, subverting those tropes of the genres mm-hmm. they're working in. I don't think of that as more yeah, of a, a devoted not... sort of sincere genre film like i think we own the night is it's not yeah. trying to be self-aware so you, um, there's something about the culture of the type of genre that these dark crime thrillers are exactly right we we go back to paul schrader's work and we're only glossing the first 30 years of the genre yeah right we can we can go back to the 40s we, we yeah. can go back and debate Orson Welles versus um, Hitchcock yeah, and, and their influence on the genre. So the, this is a genre that's have that's not only had almost 100 years to breathe, but it's had possibly hundreds of thousands of hours to breathe between right. different countries, different continents. And right. it's how much of that was saturated into James Gray. Uh, I believe he wrote and directed this one. Do you know? That's right. Okay. Um, so there, there is something in the just sheer fabric of it where not one moment, not one part of it is a weakness for me. You, you know, like the fakest part of it was my yeah. favorite part. Yeah. The car chase. Yeah. Which was shot in broad daylight in the middle of the day when I it was bright this. and shiny. This was going to be one of my questions was knowing does knowing that the rain was added in post production to make it from more the scene impressive at all. it does <laughs> there it you makes go. me like it more because i didn't know and i couldn't believe how believable it was yeah like it's you know that scene i would put with the opening scene to the dark knight yeah which is the opening scene to the dark knight's one of my favorite pieces of cinema ever in the history of cinema yeah and that's what part of why i like that movie so much just because i i'm kind of a sucker for the heist picture and that is yeah. just such a tight heist oh yeah you know and mm. when they go on to do that in the dark knight rises with bane's character it's you know it's good it's really cool what they do with the imax camera but it's not the same as that bank heist and yeah. that car chase made me feel the way i feel when i watch that bank heist which is just my blood is is kind of pumping and I'm in the moment every step of the way and I'm reacting to every single sound in the sound effects. Yeah. And I'm just enthralled. For one moment, I'm not in the moment. And that's yeah. a special type of a scene where you're not ever outside the moment. Yeah. 
beyond the car chase other scenes that the one that shakes the barley yeah um and then what was that scene that we were talking about that led up uh where he's in the body house yeah yeah the the apartment scene yeah um other than that not really it was more (laughs) moments looks glances uh dialogue shared between him and his friend who comes to betray him and him and ava mendez yeah yeah it, it was very much about how they could get me to feel um not so yeah. much the scenes and yeah. that's not to detract from him that's just to put up so much what they're doing with their emotions yeah you know it, when i finished it i was like well i heard james gray has another joaquin phoenix movie i guess i yeah. need to watch that and also i think that it's about time for the re for the uh rewatch of the master oh yeah great movie a personal favorite for sure uh yeah like kind of thinking again about why i think i would put that first in the three i totally get why you would describe velocity of z or Z and the immigrant as genre movies they're sort of velocity of z fits into that sort of swashbuckling adventure kind of genre but i think both of those are in the expedition genre as well right. there, there was kind of this larger expedition genre of um not only films but novels right we, we right. think of the swiss films robinson we think of robinson crusoe we think of uh shipwrecked we think of yeah. or shipwrecked you know all these right. sorts of things and then i think with the immigrant i almost wish that i'd watched more 1920s movies more 1910 yeah. uh, movies but for some reason i want to say 1916 because i feel like there was a lot of good ones that year because i think that her performance and what they're doing with the prostitution angle and the performance angle is very much driven out of that silent film era and that uh vaudeville era yeah and i do think that that qualifies as a genre sure yeah and i don't disagree i think thinking more about lost city of z just because i've seen it way more recently than i saw the immigrant i think about the period detail in that oh don't lie you're just thinking about charlie hono I do like Charlie. There's no <laughs> lie about that. I think about the period detail in that film being very much in the foreground versus the background, and therefore, do you mean like the me... cartography tools and and kind of how the fairies absolutely and... the kind of ships they're using, their costumes, their scenes with the cartographer's and, group, and and, and that its most kind of obvious thing. analogy is Aguirre, Wrath of God. Absolutely yeah, okay. right. Um, in the middle of the jungle just the misery the 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 just sheer um stupidity of one man yeah exactly um the relentlessness of it just the which is right isn't that all kind of genre tropey but it it is it is depicted in a way that doesn't feel like genre trope but to me i've had so much time since i've watched it to reflect on it that i noticed how much more of a genre piece it is than i first noticed yes. because at first i was like this is like no movie i've ever watched and then right. i remembered i'd watched herzog before right and then i remembered a few mm-hmm. other herzog movies and right. then I, I kept remembering after that but it, it yeah. was very much like uh i i was listless after i watched it and i felt like i'd never watched anything like that and i think that yeah. i still don't think i've watched anything like that because it took to me genre and and genre tropes not in a negative context, but just things that are typically done. And it pirouetted and it shifted and it, it really played with pacing, played with timing, yeah. played with family dynamics in a way that 
isn't done, right? The Swiss Family Robinson is yeah. about them surviving on an island. Robinson yeah. Crusoe is about him getting back to civilization. Yeah. This was a journey about journeying, not finding what you wanted, and then wanting to take your kid there. Right. It really switched it up for me. Right. Uh, it almost felt like a like a coming science fiction film. Like I would love right. to see the same movie shot by him again with the mm. same cast, but with Charlie going to a planet. Right. I'd love mm. that. But I think you, you could have a very similar kind of film set in modern day involving um, expedition and adventure, and it would similarly fit into yeah. that adventure genre. So I think what what I'm what I'm thinking about is the fact that that sort of seems to coexist in this sort of period uh group of films and this adventure group of films because the period detail in that movie as well as the immigrant is very much in the foreground like that is um of that is of importance to gray like i think like that is right there on the surface is attention to period detail yes. whereas we on the night what's our what's interesting is that this is a period film this is 1980s new york a different director could lean so hard into that this could feel super 80s this could feel like real new york types with like some some thick new york accents but the setting and the location he kind of puts that in the the background in a way that served to me really as the foundation for character yeah. and yeah no i would say behavior the in a way set it up the most by casting mark right like right. you don't even feel like you're in the east outside of mark right and then once you get into the cops you know it comes up but you almost don't really know where you are right you could have been in la right i think that gives this to me a more timeless kind of quality that's exactly the word yeah it's timeless I, and i think the dracula is timeless as well yeah and i think that the coming vampire film is also going to be viewed as timeless i think it already yeah. is based on my view but, uh I, I i do think that both those films are very timeless where there's something about coppola's fingerprints and the way he smudges a film the way that he wants to where it's already been more than 20 years right since dracula yeah 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 so it's aged but yeah. it doesn't feel like it right no technology I, is way beyond where it was and it still is exciting me more than anything so else so I, I wrote is. down that i wanted to ask you how you think it's going to age but i realized that we already know how it's it, aged it, it is aged and, it's, and it's aged like one of his fine wines do, do you think it's going to be as good as his wines and you're just going to say yes so what do you think about we on the night though do you think it's going to age this in, in this palette i think it's exactly one decade roughly since it came out do you think that it's still looking good and do you think Absolutely. it's going to age well I do think it'll age well and for, for different reasons. It's not for – I was about to say it's not for the craft. I, I don't mean that as, as, as a criticism of the craft, but I, I don't think it is You mean it that the these... overall quality of the picture is even better than mm -hmm. the summation of the craft? Yeah, I, th I think there are thematic um, – there's a thematic kind of backbone here and a kind of a classicism to the style that doesn't go out of fashion. I don't think – I think Dracula is timeless, but I don't know that it's one for everyone. It is a very specific style. I don't think of We on the Night as being of a really specific sort of um, style. I think of this as a focus, as a film focused on character and mm -hmm. themes like like family. Well, 
family. I, I think that perhaps um, Dracula is focused on a character as well. You know, it is. It is. But, well, but I think the difference is like approachability, right? Like I think right. Dracula, I could passively recommend to anybody I don't really know. Yeah. As something that they should probably watch, whereas with We Own the Night, I might be like more hesitant especially with younger viewers like i can't see myself recommending this to uh um kayla from eighth grade right like i, I can't see me you wouldn't recommend to dracula this. to her either would you Maybe? no but i could see her watching it <laughs> yeah, you know what i yeah. mean like I, I could see her getting pissed off at her dad and, and going in her room and watching it on her shattered iphone that makes sense. whereas i can't see we on the night doing the same thing and and that's not just for a character like kayla that's like i can't see my nephew watching the whole movie i see yeah. him saying fast forward to the chase scene or the the busts you know like he would want to see yeah. those moments but he can barely sit through the dark night you know um, he gets bored. don't even tell me that so he you know he needs mm-hmm. the lego movie he needs you know these yeah. things that are more colloquial more fun and i'm sure that i would have been the same way when i was that young well i wouldn't have been because i know i wasn't but i was yeah. similar when i was a little bit younger than yeah. him. And then we different strokes different folks but i i do yeah. think that there's an age gap where perhaps yeah. someone could like Dracula. Specifically, I think girls could really get into Dracula before maybe boys yeah. can. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that boys before like high school and, and maybe later high school would really appreciate We Own the Night. I agree. I think it, I think it is – I think it would play different – oh, wow. That, that's kind of interesting to think about like which – how this would play to to, to men versus women. I was going to say men versus oh, yeah. women yeah, because no, that, that to me is this is this this is a movie about family, but a family of dudes. There's yeah. a dad and two brothers, and the right? the woman is cast aside for his um, attempt at, at uh, redemption for his family of brothers. And exactly. Father. I was moved. I would be like I could kind of see somebody watching this and saying these fucking guys yeah right and i would that makes total sense um like i think gender is kind of a big a big part of this movie we really we haven't really talked about that i don't know if i had that much to say about it but i think that that would play into i, I guess it is a big part but it didn't feel like a big part it kind of did to me i kept wondering or or not being quite sure what to make of the role of the absence of a of a mom in this story and what yes, role the, that would play the void of and and how they were kind of delegating ava's um concerns to be secondary right i, I didn't necessarily view that as like any sort of a gender conversation i viewed that yeah. as a relationship it's still kind of a family thing where, yeah. where where it was more like dude you're ignoring her you asshole yeah yeah and then she's like really you're ignoring me you asshole and i yeah. kind of viewed it more towards who the characters were behaving with each other than an overarching yeah. gender conversation right right it, it maybe more it, it was sort of a um a, a factor that i that kind of kept popping into my mind rather than the than the thematic focus i wouldn't consider it that by any means but it did certainly kind of keep coming to mind as this yeah, is a story to me about the only dudes. mother they show right is um is his foul mother who barely has any screen time at all and just wants him to eat more if i remember correctly yeah and right. then um him pulling ava mendez away from her mother right so it's kind of mothers uh, being forceful so it certainly isn't a positive depiction but i don't think that that's yeah. necessarily a claim as much as just using 
so much genre backbone that perhaps the female characters didn't you almost didn't need one besides Ava in in a picture like this because she represented kind of the fulcrum of the identity of emotional emotional stakes for the movie and and then the juxtaposition of that was his uh brother and his father and we see the slow deterioration because she doesn't have her life on the line he keeps ignoring her yeah and and so i i mean maybe there is something deeper to that but i didn't feel like it went deeper than uh kind of a screenplay yeah it never comes close to the foreground or anything like that It, it wasn't like a cultural conversation piece no um, and, and it's kind of an was, interesting sort of a setup for the immigrant. It's one of those ideas that seems kind of like it's floating at the periphery somewhere and kind of finds its way in and then finds its way out. Or I, I think that a, a deeper gender conversation could be found in the immigrant or the lost oh, yeah. Z, where, wife in where the wife has left Z. the home and, and he comes and to take the kid shot. she raised. And yeah, yeah, that was more gripping to me as a, as a conversation about what's going on with gender than either of those two. I would agree. So that seems like the end of what we have to say on Wheel in the Night. Um, any parting shots? Any any last moments you want to fire away? I would highly recommend it. Absolutely. Highly recommend my favorite James Gray piece. I think that if you're going to watch a coming James Gray film, which I, I believe there is one, and I'm sh- sure that um, you, you should definitely <clears throat> maybe start with this if you're interested in Paul Schrader's work you like taxi driver if you like goodfellas if you like casino if you like any of those movies if you like scarface this is a very unique take on that that is very you'll feel at home but you'll also feel fresh you'll you'll feel like you're experiencing a new story i would agree any interesting crime movies in general joaquin phoenix specifically more the other characters are great but i really think that's the performance that draws your focus yeah despite this really being a story about family one person draws your attention and i think it's one of the better performances i've seen from him it's a strong performance by him he could have three thousand i can't remember i know that i need to rewatch the master and that he's great in that he's good in so many movies that i I don't know if this is necessarily a standout but i know that i never questioned his I, I, I was never like, I'm watching Joaquin right now. I was like, wow, yeah. I'm watching this guy. Yeah. And that, you know, says enough. It's worth watching. Absolutely. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. I think I gave it a four and a half and a like. What'd you give it? Four and a half and a like. All right. We're, we're simpatico on this. We both like it. <laughs> we, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on um, movies like Damsel <laughs> or uh, such, such movies as... Um, <laughs> we opened with interview with the vampire that's correct so we we definitely think that it's at least three times the movie the interview <laughs> with the vampire is big bump um, so on to only lovers left alive after a studio break studio break we are coming back to you with only lovers left alive continuing the vampire theme but in a very different mood jim very jarmish good recent release within the last uh five years or so i think 2015 uh, 14 
Maybe, I thought it was even longer ago, but that might be right. I think I, I don't remember. It could have even been 2014, but it, it certainly is. I, I think it's definitely before Thor: The Dark World, before Hiddleston yeah. kind of got his big shot in that Thor movie. Um, but it's, I mean, it doesn't really matter when it was made because it's ageless. There you go. So, one way I think to start is. Interview with the Vampire, directed by Neil Jordan. Not exactly a household name, not a director that, with my experience, I would call uh, someone with an extensive background that you and I might discuss. Branson Ford Coppola, someone very different. Jim Darmish. What sort of uh, familiarity do you have with him? Did that play any role in your enjoyment of the film? So I had no familiarity with him at all until I watched it for the first time. And after that, I decided he was one of my favorite directors. And guess what? Yeah. I watched nothing else from him. Nice. I like it. And I haven't watched anything until we rewatched it. And I don't know if I want to, because this encapsulates everything I love. I've been mm-hmm. meaning to watch Dead Man for over two years. Had it in my next thing to watch folder. Still haven't gotten to it. So it's not that high of my priority. I think that I'm just scared to go that far back with Johnny Depp in a role mm-hmm. that I might not see the Academy Award nomination um gravitas that that it had i don't remember the uh, the uh supporting actor but he did win an uh an academy award i believe for it yeah um but i'm just kind of iffy on that because this is m- one of my favorite films of all time and if it's not even viewed as his best movie then i don't know that i need to see anything else i'm sure i do it's just i'm scared <laughs> <laughs> and i don't That's have fair. an eve to hold my hand <laughs> that would help it would help to have tilda swinton holding my hand through his filmography it would help anything <laughs> i'm not deeply familiar with his filmography but patterson is one of my top five movies oh shoot from... i totally spaced on patterson oh you saw patterson oh, okay okay good okay we got that adam driver i yep. saw it that's just... there we go equate the name i did see mm. an adam driver movie that came out at all ever Patterson was one of my favorite movies from 2016. Top five. Definitely not one of my top five. Almost in my top ten. But top five, 2015? 2016. 2016? Yeah. It would have been... I would have wanted to. I, I think I remember wanting to. I remember making my picks for the Oscars that year. Yeah. And really wanting to pick the few areas that it was considered to, before nominations came out that it could have been considered for. And I think it ended up getting zero nominations. It did. And that's kind <laughs> of how I felt about the few areas that I thought Columbus could have got nominated in. Mm, like, um, oh, yeah. I, I thought that... Another uh, one of my top five, probably. Locations. Yeah. It, it, it could have really taken that, but it didn't. Um, yeah. So it, it was definitely a movie that I was warm on, but I don't feel like has the gravitas to pull down any real acclaim patterson i I feel like it's something that oh did you like the guy from star wars did you really like girls can i recommend this to you yeah um not some i was it ruth nega that played the love interest it was it wasn't ruth nega she was in loving it was uh, a middle eastern actress who was also in and Asghar Farhadi movie called About Ellie. I'm blanking on her name. Um, a Middle Eastern actress, not an African American actress. Oh, okay. But for some reason, I was good. thinking Ruth yeah. Nega there. Yeah. Um, 
I, I probably because of the warmth of the the portrayal that she gave and the, the warmth. Talent. Yeah. 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 yeah Ruth Nega has this underwhelming mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. constantly where she can yeah. she can be up to devilishness and, and preacher as Domino and still yeah. you, you can still mm. feel really happy about whatever it is that she's doing. Yeah. Um, and I think that Patterson warmth comes out the most. Yeah. And it certainly did make me go read uh, Carlos's poems immediately. William after Carlos Williams. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I immediately picked up my copy of, of the limited poems of his I have and I reread them. Yeah. So he certainly has that the ability to intersection art into film and to make Absolutely. that feel um, in the viewer. Like you feel right. the art that isn't in the you feel art that is extra textual to the film in yourself the viewer as you watch yep. his films i think right i'm always sort of like hesitant to suggest some of these movies because i do feel like they benefit from extra textual knowledge because some of them are kind of reference uh oriented um that not, that not everybody has Lots Alive is very absolutely way more so than than his others patterson but one I, of my favorites of that yeah. year. Um, I don't another, think either need the extra text. What, what's the other one that you're about to mention? The other one was uh, one of his earliest films. I think it was even his debut, which was Stranger Than Paradise. Um, to me, both of those That's films... sitting in my next-to-watch folder as well, and I'm just... I, I'm either intimidated or I'm scared to give up my absolute adoration of this director. I don't ever yeah. want to not feel the way I feel about him. So that... Yeah, I watched that for the first time within the last year and i think that instantly launched into my all-time favorites okay so i don't know if that makes it more intimidating or less sometimes it's hard to know other people like it you worry like you just might not like it or you think it's a ride for something well, knowing like that what you it like just creates when feelings, you like something but... a lot means that like <laughs> i'm gonna like it a fair amount or i'm not gonna like it at all right best case scenario you're talking lost in translation oh, worst yeah. case scenario you're talking the first purge there you go <laughs> But Patterson, Stranger Than Paradise, both films, I think, that are extremely concerned with the present. Not particularly interested in forward momentum, in suspense. They're more interested in the, the feeling of the everyday and the routine that these characters are going through and the relationships with each other and... Um, with this sort of sense of cool with his idea. Do you think idea. that that's just Jarmouche? Yeah, absolutely. After watching this movie specifically, do you, do you, I feel like everything you're describing is absolutely present in Only Lovers Left Alive and I think is absolutely mm -hmm. present in himself as a character. And I do think he's yeah. one of those directors, even more than Sorsese, more than David Lynch, even though Lynch has an entire specific type of meditation that he's created or or uh become famous for expounding on yeah jarmouche is kind of this character that's almost tom waitsian right yeah and we mm. i forgot to bring up mm. tom waits in dracula mm. Mm. he was amazing in dracula but i, mm. I do feel mm. like tom waits and jim jarmouche have this um simpatico so, sort of kinship where yeah they they're so cool that they don't care and it's so cool that they don't and yeah. they're only cool because they don't care. I think, a, and I think a lot of people like don't get that idea. Like, why is not caring cool? Or what, what I thought was interesting about Only Lovers Left 
alive is that while those two films, the only two I've seen, are so focused with the everyday, which in a sense Only Lovers Left Alive is, but they're confined um, timelines. They're, they're focused on short periods of time that invoking vampires involves eternity. That is that is like an that is incredibly expansive on anything he's done. His sense of time. He's usually focused on really short periods and like the well, he is the, focused the on feeling. a short period in this movie. His characters Let's do that. are not defined by this short period. Yeah, but this movie is defined by this short period. The movie starts with a beautiful pirouetting camera rotating from mm-hmm. Adam to Eve, Tilda Swinton to Tom. Hiddleston and back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. And it stops when Tom Hiddleston's record stops. Yeah. And then we're in. And what we come to understand is that Tom Hiddleston is suicidal. He does not want to continue uh, within the definitions of, of mortal life as an immortal. Yeah. And it seems to be his pattern. We, we don't ever get an overt pickup on that, but it does seem to be that that's his pattern. And it does seem to be what happens when he is no longer in the center of innovation. Based on yeah. extra textual context that we get from Eve's character and kind of his background as they chat or as they chat over uh, electronic devices. Right. There's a point where Eve is talking to Christopher Marlowe and he refers to adam as that suicidal scoundrel so you definitely get the idea that like this might be something he's done before it's not just a new thing this might be a pattern yes exactly (laughs) do you have any favorite lines did you pick did you remember any did you take notes of any or or did it all kind of just gloss over you and you were just in the warm (sighs) bath of jarmusch's uh culture uh i can't think of any particular lines off the top of my head i think i was struck by a couple things one was the music itself that adam plays and how great fitting it a great one like just right up my alley and fitting with the mood i would describe it as sort of this drone shoegaze type of guitar driven music that's just right in line with kind of this depressive uh, dissatisfaction that he's supposedly feeling. It's like I was angsty totally if angsty had zero energy. Exactly, right? I was completely on board with that. Um, and watching him perform that in his uh, apartment full of these vintage guitars, full of these cultural artifacts, it's it's uh, it just felt like a a really rich environment with these uh, triggers for cultural reference that um, has nothing to do with with plot or narrative, but that you just immediately want to just spend time in. Well, I I agree that I want to spend time in it, but I disagree that it has nothing to do with the plot or the narrative. I, I should say, I should clarify that you can enjoy it just by being in that moment. Yes, and want to continue to be in that moment. Aside from any, any plot aside relevance any or thematic relevance. Yes. Just or subtext the... or biblical mm. conversation or, yeah. or any of that stuff. Yeah. So did you pick up on the differences between Adam and Eve? Um, 
Right, I suppose I in should behavior just start with, and personality. Did you read perhaps my letterboxd review at all? I did not. I deliberately okay. did not. I saw the five star rating. I sure. deliberately five did star not. rating with the heart. With the heart. <laughs> with the heart. <laughs> um, so, I, I kind of belabored upon it, but um, so the the thing is, what you're describing is Adam creating. Yeah. What does Eve do with her fingers? With her fingers, uh, I don't know. So what, when what she's you're when of. she's packing, yeah, yeah, is, she's picking out she particular book? books to, to put in the suitcase. And remember when in she opens suitcase. them, opens the book, and she uh, runs her finger on yeah. it. So she she runs her finger on it, done. She runs her finger on it, done. And she's yeah. absorbed all the information, yeah, through her fingertips. She's consuming the art. Yeah, she, so she, when she's touching, she just has to touch the guitar later on to figure out when it was made. Yeah, yeah. So she just has to touch with her fingertips to figure out how something was created or what something is. or Like the bullet. Or to take it in. Yeah. Exactly, like the bullet. Yeah. Whereas Adam uses his fingers to create. Yeah. So they are, they are very juxtaposed characters. One creates yeah. with their fingertips, and one one interprets creation with their fingertips. Yeah, and I I think that that might be, um, kind of the eternal uh, masculine and feminine at work mm. within um, Jarmusch's head, similar to how we see um, Aronofsky play with those ideas huh. and Mother, and these are yeah. really old creationistic ideas that are in um, the Old Testament and the Bible. And, and in other religious and literary works ever since. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So when she books the the plane ticket to go get him. Yeah, from Tangier. Yeah. She says, under the name of Fibonacci. Right. Mm -hmm. Up till then, Adam is basically like a vinyl record on his shelf. Yeah. He's no longer spinning in the camera. He's listless. He's answering the door. He's looking out his window. He's just ordered a bullet to kill himself with. Yeah. And then she decides to get his world spinning again. And she books yeah. under the name of Fibonacci. This is yeah. absolutely on purpose. This is absolutely a play into bigger themes of, of life and the equation of life, which is fundamentally the golden ratio, which is hidden in the Fibonacci sequence or yeah. within the Fibonacci sequence. Um, and then when they come back from Detroit to Tangier. Together. She books under um, Daisy from The Great mm -hmm. Gatsby. He books yeah. under Daedalus from James Joyce's The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and Ulysses. Yep. From then on, they're no longer able to make any choices for their lives. Yep. They are 100% at the mercy of whatever is happening in the moment. Especially after she says, give me all your money back. Yeah. The last thing she does is buy him a present. Um, and that's kind of their last choice. The guitar. Um, as separate people. Yeah. And then they're, they make the choice to uh, turn a young couple because they don't want to kill them. Yeah. Which is, I, I think that even though this is the end of the movie, this is the fulcrum of the movie. Yeah. And, and it's, it's placement in this, these, this three movie arc of vampires. The first one, 
Brad Pitt has already turned. The movie is starting. Yep. Second one, it's about him wanting to become one. This yep. one is about them not wanting to kill anyone, so they have to turn him. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that is a very interesting book, book ending, uh, end cap to kind of the the ethics at play here of vampirism. Yeah. What do you think? I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, th- I think the order we watched him in uh, was was pretty productive. I would agree. I this too. makes sense as sort of as sort of a bookend. Um, I think I think your bra- your background and studies makes you more interested in some of some of those extra textual references. Absolutely. I was. Yeah, I'm 100 percent there for him. I was I was much more interested in uh, in the mood some of the performances um and some of this uh this this sense of the sense of cool that defines the film because that's what's really that's exactly me. how i reacted <laughs> when i was in the cinema watching it for the first time you saw this in the theater that's I great did. i got to see it in the cinema um and i i was just enraptured the whole time yeah I was just wow this feels so good this looks so good yeah i I was still iffy on Tilda Swinton as an actress at that yeah. point in time. I was still not sure who uh, Tom Hiddleston was. I was still budding in my love for Anton Yelchin. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, this is that Alice in Wonderland girl, Mia Wasikowska. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I was still new to everything. And because of that rawness, I took everything in. And I was just in a good mood already. So I just had a really pleasant experience with it. Yeah. But I didn't pick up on any of its deeper stuff yeah i felt that it was there but i didn't pick up on it and i didn't understand it and i couldn't have articulated it but i could have yeah. told you there's something in there and this yeah. this viewing yeah. um i've recently reread ulysses uh before that i yeah. read the portrait of the artist as a young man i've seen i don't know how many renditions of uh the great gatsby i've read it twice yeah. uh since high school and then obviously you read it in middle school and high school or yeah one of the two so I, I'm just very familiar with that stuff. So the fact that he's playing with these great American characters. Yeah. Not that um, necessarily Daedalus is an American character, but he's become an American yeah. character. Yeah. I was very much on board for these metaphors about creators, creation, artists, how to interpret art, how to redistribute it um, yeah. for consumption. Yeah. I think there's something pretty incredible about um, watching a movie and getting this sensation that makes you think to yourself man i really want to go read a book yeah i really want to like go listen to some music that's kind of what this movie no, does no. for me it was <laughs> i want to listen to a record while I on read a vinyl book. yeah while i read a book yes absolutely uh, <laughs> uh you you look at all the pictures on his wall and you see you know lester keaton rodney dangerfield all these great scientists Buster Keaton next to Rodney Dangerfield, who is, I believe, like above Albert Einstein. I don't think he's directly above, but he ends up right. Being above I really like don't. You want to watch like a short doc on like the order of those people? Because like who's side by side is just great. Yeah. Um, like that. That's kind of just 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 satisfying in itself. Just to 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 watch that on screen and then be excited about going uh, and. Uh, finding what those people created that's just a really kind of enriching 
cinematic thing. Um, one of one of my favorite moments was um, when Mia Wasikowska's character drags them out to the bar with Anton Yelchin, Adam and Eve, and they're all wearing their sunglasses except for Anton Yelchin. And then he puts on his sunglasses and kind of giggles. He's like, yeah. And it's kind of like he feels like he's a part of the crew now. He's us. Exactly right. And that's just such a satisfying moment. It's like Jarmusch sort of distances you a little bit from these characters. And then he's kind of like, all right, I'll let you in on this fun a little bit. I think that's just a a super satisfying moment. I I feel like uh, Anton Yelchin mirrored the experience of the audience kind of yeah where in that moment when mia wasikowska becomes part of the storyline we kind of have this handle on what it feels like to be there for the first time we have yeah. an idea of what it feels like and anton yelchin's character gets dragged into it and we really feel them out at that nightclub scene yeah and then she drains him yeah and then all the feeling leaves the movie it does. They it's a big th- pivot. They go throw him in the uh, in the acid pit in the Detroit uh, ruin, whatever yeah. that was. It was very Lost River. It was it was strange why there there is this pool of acid, but I went with it. I Dude, didn't... it was so didn't it kind of fit in that Lost River vibe? I have not like... seen Lost River. Oh, you hadn't. Okay, that's right. You hadn't <laughs> seen. It. Okay, you were just the one that remembered it the other day. Yeah. So it, it very much fits in this like dead city vibe of of Detroit, yeah, where of, for acid some reason. just pools. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they're dumping the body, she says, "I think they're clocking you." And they are talking about Candidas something, and I, I probably mispronounced that already. But they're talking about coyotes, mm. talking about coyotes clocking the vampire tom hiddleston oh yeah that's right they see them running around yeah and i found that fascinating there just because we're we already talked about the relationship between the wolf and and the wolf derivatives and the vampire and this is the first movie out of all of them that really um never uh made a correlation or deviated from it they just kind of glossed over the fact that coyotes are clocking vampires yeah and i found that that very cool that it was yeah just like the whole movie i found it very cool that it was just glossed over and i really think that um her bringing up the latin names constantly yeah to plants and animals and saying hello was not only you you know it's biblical it's deep and all that stuff but it was the first time that i ever felt like something biblical was just cool and like kind and nice and sweet the mushrooms the the mushrooms the skunk the skunk the i forgot about the skunk i, I think there's yeah, some yeah. some birds that, that she says the name of um, yeah and she kind of says hello friend and like yeah. you know it's like she's yeah. been expecting to see these things a long time and i thought that was a very cool way of interpreting that old idea of humans naming everything in the in yeah. the old testament i where it was they didn't just name stuff they named stuff so that they could say hello to it and be kind to it and treat it like a friend and i really relish that i feel like that was also something that was present in mother um and yeah. it, or something that would have been present in mother if, if it was able to be and i really just loved the way that that colored the the movie and the way that that colored eve's character and her juxtaposition to hiddleston's character yeah performance wise were you 
into her performance Love and it. his performance. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. The dead hair goes a long way with both of them. Yes. Yeah, stringy. Kind of looks like if you put your hand in it, you might not get it back out. <laughs> looks like they've been dead <laughs> for a while. It does. Uh, very. It's like a very convincing piece of, of um, hair and makeup to really yeah. sell the fact that they're vampires. Um, yeah. I think Tilda more more than Hiddleston is capable of this not body dysmorphia but something like that where you feel yeah. like she's capable of being this thing that is human and non-human yeah so you don't like Tilda Swinton as an actress very much you don't feel strongly for her performances this is the first movie where I really started to gravitate toward her yeah I, I've got a lot of performances since then that I've really enjoyed yeah how do you feel about this performance with Tilda Swinton uh, I, I can't say that like this really convinced me to to enjoy her any more than I have. Um, it did, but it by no means sort of detracted from my enjoyment of the film overall. I think there. So are she just, didn't do anything better for you than she'd done in the past. I don't think so. Interesting. Okay. Um, and have you seen the bigger splash? I have. Okay, and so despite... between both of those, you don't like. Correct. you just don't like her then probably i don't think i do and i think this is a taste thing i think i it's one of those performers who i might give a higher rating to if i really sort of examine what she's doing like with her face and with her body but i think that there are other performers whose screen presence i just kind of prefer um or I, I think it, that i i, I I'm, I'm still always sort of trying to navigate like where where taste and sort of objectivity and kind of you know separate i kind of see what's right about what she's doing and and what's harder to figure out is why i can't quite connect with that and i think that, i think that's taste and coming into play i think there are other people who might do the exact same gesture with their their dancing for example there's a scene where she's sort of dancing to some music that's playing i get slightly more joy from other actresses and how they move their arms and that kind of thing um it's hard to kind of dig into it unless you do it side by side i think so for me tilda is a force because as a performance actress i i think that she is capable of agelessness in a way that i would only compare to kate blanchett and this capability mm -hmm. of depicting something that is that is ageless and possibly genderless in certain scenarios. I think that Tilda can can subvert any sort of a gender identity completely when she chooses yeah. to with the right makeup artist. Um, yeah. And between this, I I don't like the movie, but her movie or her performance, and we need to talk about Kevin and yeah. a bigger splash. I think that I kind of came to understand what she's capable of as, as a as an actress, and then I went on to watch like Wes Anderson's movies with her, and and really built out my appreciation of what she's doing, because what she's doing is character acting, but it's character acting I think in kind of an ageless trope, like she's always filling in for for a value that you could find in a in any old book, you could find it in yeah. any old movie. 
And what she's doing is giving it the most breath and the most life that that role can kind of have. And yeah. I, so you say you could see someone else bringing more to a, a specific dance. Could you see someone yeah. bringing more to the role of Eve? It's hard. I can't think of a, I'm not thinking of a particular actress that I would just easily swap out with her. But I, but I'm thinking about why, like, Mia's performance, Mia Vasikovska's performance, it works a little bit better for me. Because of the context of the movie. She is the wrench thrown into the gear. Yeah, but I mean, like, if, uh, when I think about Tilda Swinton, I think the role that I have, that I did most enjoy her in was uh we need to talk about kevin which i think was sort of her her most um kind of straightforward character for for lack of a better word she's playing she's playing a mom um i prefer her in that mode to i think a particularly idiosyncratic mode which i think this vampiric high cultured type of character um seems to it just seems to be very fitting with the image i already like have of her somehow with outside of acting and that's kind of why like i enjoy tom hiddleston in this role is that i i don't necessarily think of him as sort of this a little kooky depressive um isolated type so i kind of let me just criticize you for a second yeah i would say do you think about tom hiddleston at all when i watched this movie no outside of this movie definitely really okay yeah Yeah, so i to me i don't think he's a performer that anyone really thinks about ever other than loki and I, I've, oh. I've heard that, like, mm. girl, you know, he's kind of getting the uh, Channing Tatum sort of attention that girls find him very handsome. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, outside of that context, I don't feel like anyone's talking about his performances. You know, right. so, so yeah. when, you, when you're able to um, nitpick Tilda Swinton and then you say you're, you kind of can't for Hiddleston, I'm almost wondering if that's because you can't n- name his performances because this is kind of a fresh new performer to you. This is kind of your first exposure to his role in this type of a format of a movie. It's weird. When I watch him in this movie, I come into it, first of all, you know, with sort of that extra textual information that I have, you know, him in other roles like uh, High Rise, for example. I don't know if you saw that one. I did. Um, And there was a spy miniseries called the night manager which was his best work right i saw him in that Um, okay i I assumed that you wouldn't have seen that okay i just was like he's not gonna watch a huge miniseries (laughs) (laughs) that miraculously is one i have seen from start to finish believe it or not amazon prime streaming (laughs) exactly um so and even it's it's impossible to say this or it, it's really not fair to say this, but I think even if I hadn't seen those, it I think I still would have had this sense of a rather suave person playing some playing somewhat against type. A suave person playing against type. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think about about a better use of words. Um, I think he's playing 
a character you could almost describe in like middle school terms as kind of emo right yeah yeah definitely definitely uh, high school terms really i don't right? know what high school you went to but my high school was filled with pejoratives <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> so yes someone that's kind of subverting social stereotypes on purpose he, he i think certain sorry go ahead go ahead like he he knows that what he's doing makes him more attractive but he's doing it anyways out of selfishness and then he's calling yeah. other people guilty for being exactly who they would be because yeah. he's got such a long timeline of being aware of how they're going to end up. You know, it's kind of like when you're an adult and you look at a, a kid or your nephew or someone in middle school that you are, are at all close to and you can see exactly who they're going to be ahead of time yeah, based on who they're behaving as. And no matter what you do, you can't change it. And the mm. only thing you can do to make it worse is to act how Tom Hiddleston acts. Where you you make it so they're guilty or they're doing something bad. You know, it's like Yeah. It's like when a parent um kind of draws attention to your rebellion. It doesn't make it better. Yeah. They just need to ignore you and then you'll figure out that you're not really that person to begin with. Yeah. It's it's kinda like mm. that. And and I, I think that that is on purpose to exemplify mm. how he's listless and why yeah. the Fibonacci sequence of rotation and spiraling needs to kick in from Tilda's coming in. I, yeah. I really do think that the, that the fact that she books under Fibonacci and the fact that she comes back under Daisy and that he comes back under Daedalus are super key to the, to understanding the movie. And I, I yeah. totally understand like that you don't even need that to appreciate it as yeah. a work of art to begin with. Yeah. But I, I do think that if you examine like its plot pointing and and what's happening as far as um, um, kind of inciting incident and the climax, so I'd, I'd say the inciting incident is she comes. Yeah. Wazkowski comes. Yeah. At, uh, after each. It's like there. the biggest plot event. Almost. Essentially. <laughs> and then the climax comes. What yeah. she does while Anton Yelchin's there after they go to bed. Yeah. She drains him. Then they kick her out, and then everything kind of spirals. He can't bring his instruments, all this stuff. Yeah. And and all that falling action capitalizes with her booking. And, and the art beforehand, it's been important, but it yeah. hasn't been included in the dialogue as much. Yeah. And this is the first time that literary characters are included or that scientific characters are included until the very end when she says, tell me about entanglement. Yeah, yeah, as they're watching that couple. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I do think that those are more key to what Jarmusch thinks about the nature of reality, and I think what he wants to communicate in this picture than um, any other key point. Um, but everything else has to be noticed in order for you to truly appreciate what he's trying to say there um and and i think that if you don't revisit this movie later after you at least read yeah. some wikipedia entries about who these people are you'll yeah. never get his full dialogue that he's trying to have with you the viewer about the nature of reality and um the reason why when you're depressed you shouldn't kill yourself the reason why there's yeah. always life out there and also the attitude that you should have to life 
is the attitude yeah. that Eve has. Hello, yeah. friend. And then the Latin name for the skunk. You don't need to say that to the skunk. You just need yeah. to go to the friendly dog cafe down the road and say hello to the dog. You know, but that's the yeah. nature uh, of behavior that you need to have or else you can be like Tom Hiddleston. And even when you are behaving as Tom Hiddleston behaves, you do need to attempt to behave more like Eve. You do need to yeah. be more uh, earnest and you need to make an attempt towards life and growth. And I, I think yeah. that he really does have a statement movie there in a way that he didn't in Patterson. Hmm. Interesting. Not that Patterson yeah. isn't a statement movie. I think it really is about a way of life. But I think that this is directly about the nature of suicide and death yeah just by the nature of vampirism and by him making the wooden bullet and yeah. anton yelchin's character dying um and the, f the family dynamic of mia wazikowska's character patterson doesn't really get into right the the big fulcrum event in patterson is the dog eating his book of poetry and then how he yeah continues or doesn't continue to make art after that yeah yeah to to sort of connect this with interview with the vampire i think only lovers left alive certainly is enriched by a knowledge of all that extra text extra textual information yeah but it but like many of these references which i did not get did not me not getting those did not detract from my enjoyment well, of the movie it did because you didn't give it the right rating which is a five possible that's <laughs> fair <laughs> unlike interview with the vampire where i think maybe not not being familiar with some of the thematic weight that the book had might detract where you're like i yes. don't understand why these people are behaving but as absurdly as they are you also something. are like that's not in the book all the time and you're yeah. you're also like the right dialogue's not there or like the right look isn't you know like yeah as much as the book plays into interview with the vampire there's a lot missing in yeah. the performances not necessarily the performer's fault but maybe Anne rice made the decision to you know it yeah. hasn't turned out very well when a novelist writes their own screenplay adaption for a film just ask yeah. stephen king how that went yeah exactly <laughs> like i think it it sounds like almost uh kind of um patronizing to to think about hearing the description of only lovers left alive as containing all these references and just you know someone might assume but that that's like i'm thing. just it not gonna matter. get it so that yeah I, I think that the best way to put it is if you can listen to a record yeah not know who it is and yeah. like it and be fine with that yeah you're absolutely fine with this movie because you can like yeah. it and not know a single thing about it and then like a record the more you learn about what's happening in it the more yeah. meaning it comes to have and the more that you get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Because d despite whatever, you know, intention he might have had, you know, for an audience to sort of find meaning in all these references, you know, the fact is, you know, people can people can find meaning in, in all these other things that he's doing with, with mood mm -hmm. and, and atmosphere. Camera movement, um, lighting. Exactly. You know, I think there's something um super rich about it when you, you 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 can just take it in these different directions that have nothing to do with some of those references um that are that are really really specific i think about um 
whenever they actually take some of the blood that they've gotten from whatever source they've tracked it down from she gets it from you know these offbeat sources in tangier he gets it from the jeffrey wright character it's like they're uh taking a drug right it they they get this blood they procure it like it's a drug like they're addicts which is um not at all how they they used to live right And, and we find that out at the end when they turn the couple because they don't want to kill them which yeah. clearly paints that they've done it before. And yeah. that kind of goes into my on-the-shelf metaphor. With all the vinyl and all the books that are on shelves, it's yeah. kind of like they as vampires are on the shelf. Because yeah. they're not living in the world causing th- what vampires cause. You can call it mayhem. They can call it life. Yeah. Right? They're not draining anyone. And what that looks like is something very sterile and weird and kind of it makes you feel weird watching it. Yeah. And it's depicted as if it's a drug. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that in itself is kind of an idea that um, they, they, they kind of fills you up for a while and, and provides you with some, uh, some stimulation despite there not being, you know, seemingly much plot-wise with this movie. Not this is sort much. of like a weird kind of hangout movie in a really dark sense of the word. Um, oh, <laughs> that's Jack White's house. Exactly. I love him. Exactly. These moments don't, you know, they don't, they don't play into, uh, I, you could argue that maybe they play into a larger narrative sense, but they're not driving, you know, m- momentum from, from moment no, it, to moment. No, it's not about, it's not necessarily about momentum. It's about, uh, it's about continuing to move at all. And that's yeah. why I think that Fibonacci specifically in the timing was so important um it's just a really special movie that i think is like a record and it can mean something different to every different person and i think that like a record you can end up turning it on and on and on and on and on again and not really ever getting tired of it and it's one of those things where you can walk in and out of the room and remember what happened and still like hearing this part of the song yeah it kind of feels like it has sort of its chorus and verses where there are moments of where like the plot kind of kicks in like when mia shows up and that makes things happen but the chorus is them just being who they are in that apartment him playing his music her interpreting and supporting him you know it does kind of have that uh that structure yes. to it that's very satisfying um <laughs> just a, a fun part that i liked doesn't need to have any depth to it mm. did you enjoy the uh her plugging in the fridge so that she could have a light to see her books with i did enjoy that <laughs> with the books <laughs> inside like a bookshelf <laughs> i like that quite a bit um you know there's this i don't even know what to make of these ideas the the, the idea about technology she has an iphone but his apartment when they facetime he's on like a tv um yeah but so at the end he i can't remember what he says but he says something very negative towards the cable sticking out of the wall you right this? i can't but say his, i know what to do with his those. apartment was sticking out he had cables all over it so i was very yeah. confused like not necessarily confused but i was curious if now that he's in motion yeah 
after this Fibonacci sequence to quote myself again and again and again. Um, yeah. If now he sees why there's a problem with this clutter and this this tanglement. Yeah. Right, because he was tangled, she wasn't. Yeah. Um, and and I I do wonder if now that he'd outgrown that he didn't even recognize the own hypocrisy of of himself. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, it's very once you watch it more than once, you're like yeah. You just think about everything way too much. It's kind of yeah. like a record where you start giving really false worship to like yeah, or just a random part of a song where you're like, I can't believe that they double strummed that note right there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like in in some other vampire movies, like Interview with the Vampire specifically, the idea of turn of eternity is a specifically, ultimately sort of a sad idea because it kind of leads to tell loneliness um i was i was less sure in only lovers left alive if that idea was necessarily a more optimistic idea or a more um depressive idea because of how involved this narrative was with art you think about well, all the art that exists in the world, none of us ever being able to consume all that we want. Does the idea of being like these vampires, so fascinated with culture and the opportunity to consume it all, to study it all, and place excite- up the blood of humans? Yeah, exactly. Is it is, is it exciting, or does that does that contribute to to, to their sort of this faction does does an end date well, I don't think sort of give meaning to I I would agree yeah and that's I, that's why I, I, I think, think it makes it hard for me to sort of decide what this movie has to say to say about the possibility of eternal life well I I, I think that um, what I picked up on and I'm not sure that I'm right but I picked up on it and, and kind of thought about it for a while was she is reading and she's putting herself into her interpretations of what she's reading. And she's yeah. honestly being herself. He's honestly being himself as he's creating these songs. But he's not letting yeah. anyone know who he is. Um, he's he's putting out... Um, the records that he's got recordings of are have no labels on them. They're being sold by Anton Yelchin. He's not taking credit for anything. He hasn't taken credit for much. We pick up that he wrote uh, a Tchaikovsky piece. Yeah. And he asked Tchaikovsky to... Uh, to take credit for it for him so it's is the fact that you're not taking credit for who you are and what you think and how you feel getting in the way of you living your life because tilda isn't doing those things and she's just fine and she comes across the world to fix him not for any other reason than out of love to for him and to fix him not because she wants to go see him for her selfishness or any of that stuff it's she wanted him to come see her. He wouldn't. She sacrificed, went and got him yeah. going. Um, yeah. And and I, I think that there's a, just a lot to keep revisiting, um, especially, like, at different years. I think that it'll, like yeah. a record, it'll play different kind of every year. Like, I could only imagine what watching this as a parent would change. Yeah. You know, your reaction to Mia Wazakowska would uh, certainly yeah. shift. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here I was sort of excited by by her presence, just her youthfulness. 
Oh no, I, I it think, was fun, I th- I but think it you, was still annoying. In a way, you might be like even more annoyed and more concerned for her, and think to yourself, "My, my God, like what, what the hell is she doing?" Here, I wasn't really thinking that. I was thinking, just kind of about like her, uh, her, her, her sort of um, triggering some some stakes or or uh, excitement. Um, I I was kind of thinking like, how old is she? She's still acting yeah. like this. Yeah, fuck her. A little skeptical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, more more than a little chapped. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So I'd mm-hmm. say that I absolutely love this movie and look forward to rewatching it for decades to come. Where are you at? There you go. Very, very high on it. In terms of my f- favorite Jarmusch movies, I don't think it's number one. I think I would still do Stranger Than Paradise. And this is kind of neck and neck with Patterson, but still highly recommended. Do you think that you could rewatch Patterson and Only Lovers Left Alive and get better with each one? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, even Patterson has some of these references that I think no, would sort of and, enhance and more than its, that, its it, it has a timelessness. That New Jersey Absolutely. timelessness to it. Really, oh, yeah. Really, it, you know, it's a, a man and the girl that he loves, and he drives a bus, and there's a dog. Yeah, and there's a bar. Really fundamental. And, and it's a, yeah, kind of know, a fundamental appeal. Yeah, it's yeah. it's very timeless. So I feel like you could age with that just as well as you could age with Old New Lovers Left Alive. Yeah. I just think I, I just have more gravitational weight um, in my, my own I, emotional and, and uh, intellectual identity found yeah. in Only Lovers Left Alive. I'm yeah. finding things that I'm interested in or, or that I know more there, whereas... Uh, William Carlos Williams isn't someone that yeah. I'm overtly uh, voracious on, on their work. I liked his work yeah. when I read it in college. I reread some of the poems after watching the movie. Didn't yeah. do much other than that. Yeah. Fair enough. So, excellent movie. Both recommend. Highly recommended. Two Definitely seek it out. Uh, how did you watch it? I watched it at home. Uh, digital rental. Digital rental iTunes. through what? Um, iTunes iTunes, so you can rent it on iTunes. I'm pretty sure you can rent it on Amazon. Um, Available through all the usual VOD sources. Yep, so we are on to our next one. We're doing a double feature discussion here with 8th Grade and Hardspeed Lap. Uh, I think, start with our knee-jerk reactions. 8th Grade, I think we were both positive on. I I think that 8th Grade was a stronger film than hearts beat loud but i think hearts yeah. beat loud had more heart to it <laughs> um that that i think that i i'm gonna reverberate more with hearts beat loud and i re- i don't think that most people will but i personally will be thinking about hearts beat loud a little bit longer than i'll think about eighth grade i think eighth grade i kind of saw it had it kind of like his stand-up with Bo Burnham stand-up. I, I see it. I get it. I didn't laugh very much. I was glad that I saw it. I'm glad that I'm part of the cultural conversation. But it's just not as much for me as something like Hearts Beat Loud, where that mother-daughter relationship felt more emotionally um, pliable and accessible for me, the viewer. I felt like I was more of a standby. Like I, I, I didn't experience voyeurism as much as I was being forced to watch the mother uh, or not mother the father daughter relationship in eighth grade and it wasn't bad but it wasn't yeah. that 
it it wasn't like by the nature of me watching it would change it was always going to be that way you know it's, it's kind of like yeah a, a comedy movie like every time you watch it it's still going to have the same beats as it always did and i th- i think that's because he's a comedy background type of guy yeah yeah i think i'm maybe a little bit the other way around i think i preferred eighth grade to hearts beat loud i think in general with my movie going i prefer my the emotional appeal for me to be like an inch below the surface in hearts beat loud i I feel like it's right there on the center i think this is a pretty pretty sentimental movie kind of a loudly emotional movie pretty loud pretty gooey dripping in sentiment like loud maybe right yeah unlike eighth grade where some of some of the emotion is expressed through the form right it's kind of through that music which I oh it definitely has better filmmaking yeah i i just think that hearts beat loud had more character work that i was interested in seeing more Mm. like uh i I can't remember what it was but you said that you last week that you wanted to spend more time with the character with the eighth grade yeah um not not with eighth grade specifically Mm. but Mm. last week we were talking about a movie uh tessa thompson you wanted to spend more time with tessa thompson's Uh, character oh in uh relation to sorry to bother you and i wanted to spend more time with every single character in this movie I, yeah. I want this as a limited series. I want to see the band grow. I want to see the band fail. Yeah. I, I want to stay there with it. Whereas 8th grade is just a really tight, well-developed piece of work that it, it, it's almost like, it, it's certainly not as good as Kubrick. But I think my criticism mm-hmm. would be the same criticism I have for Kubrick, where it's so sterile that mm. i don't feel like me watching it is ever gonna change me it's just gonna be like mm. me observing a milestone on the road down you know towards where i'm going whereas hearts yeah. be loud i i actually felt like i i not only felt something but i felt like i developed part of my own compassion and understanding while watching it whereas eighth grade was just kind of a, a down the road that i traveled before I know you're, you, you you said the filmmaking is better in eighth grade. I think I think sort of the lack of uh, filmmaking prowess in Hearts Beat Loud really kind of detracted from 100%. my involvement in it. Yeah, I, the um, whole time I was thinking, you know, if only they got the director from Band Aid. <laughs> right, exactly. That's a similar film you thought was just plain better (laughs) yeah yeah and i really do think that the framing suck yeah and uh i i don't know if it's the shots that they were given or if it's the if it's the editor's fault i i almost always want to defend the editor when it's a musical piece yeah but she was not in sync with her mouth in multiple scenes yeah the opening musical scene where Kiersey Clemens begins to sing. Yeah. She is not singing into a microphone. Yeah. We hear production value in her voice over the speakers. I was immediately mm-hmm. taken aback, cringing, not leaning forward anymore. I'd switched my own posture in reaction to it because yeah. I was jarred. And mo- there's many moments of weakness like that. But for some reason, it's earnestness and the um the rubber band like 
character of its characters where they just keep bouncing back and trying and and admitting their faults even though the time lapse kind of doesn't let them i I really liked how it just kept bouncing back um yeah in eighth grade it doesn't get a chance to do that because that's not its purpose but that's i just tend to not like those sterile pieces of art where i don't feel changed by the end of it i didn't Mm. feel changed by the end of it i didn't feel changed by the end of the shining I didn't feel changed by the end of Eyes Wide Shut. It's just that type of sterile filmmaking, um, thoroughbreds. I don't feel changed at the end of something so sterile, so timed and well-paced. And it's not any fault of the art. It's almost Mm. like they did such a good job that there's nothing there for me to find human. Something airless or or too um, sort of contained or something. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. We're going to have to have a another podcast on Kubrick to try to and get into we'll, why that we'll works for me and why that doesn't watching. work for you. And I, I no, heard that's some people... the thing. I, I, I mm. think 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of the greatest films ever made. The Shining, same thing. I would yeah. heavily debate whether or not Eyes Wide Shut deserves the same credit. I think yeah. that the um, his work in developing the project of artificial intelligence was a very, very useful for everyone moving forward. I just yeah. don't like the film style of sterileness. It's so strange. I find that sense of sterility in a film like The Shape of Water, that felt to me like a hermetic, self-contained, sealed world with, with really no sense of possibility. It felt like a very sealed world, but for me as a very huge fan that has seen all of his work besides a few shorts... I just felt Yermo's heart and soul beating yeah. loudly throughout the whole thing. We have so many opportunities for puns here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm being loud enough. <laughs> um, fair enough. Kubrick, another podcast. Kubrick, definitely Del Toro, another podcast. Del another Toro podcast. will be another podcast with the class. <laughs> like many, several, maybe, yeah. maybe multiple We'll, we'll definitely just keep bringing him up as we do that class. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, hearts Beat Loud. So I, I have a I have a problem with, with movies that sort of like describe hardship but sometimes aren't willing to show it. One thing that, mm. that irked me just a little bit about this movie, it's not a, it's not a huge thing, but they're – on multiple occasions, they're ta- they're talking about the financial hardship that the father's going through, how expensive this is going to be to put uh, the daughter through school, and I don't think that they're really willing to show that through the world they live in. They, I, I, you know, they I, have I they have this that. impeccably decorated um, apartment. I find this to be the Friends phenomenon. Did you ever watch Friends? Mm-hmm. Of course. Right? They all have this. You know, they all have regular jobs, but they have sort of this miraculous New York apartment. Through right? roommates and, yeah. Right, But they exactly. live in a cafe and all that. Exactly. But, so, so my counterpoint to, to your case here is that um, the problem is the framing. They don't frame mm. their scenes well. And I think that what you're describing mm. would be accomplished through proper framing and, and set decoration. Where set they just let yeah. the bills sit on the counter. Yeah. And it's not something overt. They let the bill sit on the record store counter, and yeah. there's a good 
there could have been a good piece of camera work that pans over that you know that's something um you know this isn't a movie that gets talked about at all but uh there was a movie that came out called kodachrome uh on netflix Netflix one yes yeah um and it had really good cinematography yeah in a movie that you just wouldn't expect other than the title which is inherently about film and how it's shot itself yeah but if you just took that cinematographer director framer who whoever was making those calls or all of them and you threw them on this project you would have gotten something that made the the transition of of life in a lived-in environment it didn't feel like a lived-in environment it felt Mm -hmm. like the characters were going to counters and acting yeah i would agree but um some of those characters i think are the reason why it feels like a full world the same way that friends does even though i know it's not those actors are tony collette kiersey clemens nick hoffman those tony's performance really made me quit thinking about how i haven't seen a single other business in the supposed business block and i haven't seen the sidewalk walk from this business to the bar and this place placement doesn't make any sense and now they're down by the pier with the water and they're going to ride their bikes to coney island and we're not going to see coney island i quit having all these questions that I would have never had if I hadn't watched Mr. Robot and had a pretty good understanding <laughs> of what this New York environment looks like right now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was hyper aware of the problems, but it, it was characters like Tony Collette and Nick Offerman and just their the way that they exuded and, and were exuberant in their performance and their commitment where it's not so much the world as the characters I want to spend more time with. And I think that it's characters like that that make people go back to Friends. Not its believability, but those characters. And that's right. why I feel that desire for a, a series more than a movie. Because that, yeah. mo- that movie did not pay off. It didn't. Right. It didn't pay off an ass. I, the, Friends, the Friends analogy, like, it, 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 it holds up to some degree. But, like, the, the point of, of, of Friends was never to sort of, you know talk about their financial um situations unless in, in any degree unless or, there was some like a new chair really specific reason for doing so but that plays like a, a pretty central um uh the, it, it plays a central, pretty central place in this in this so story I, so I it's think a little harder for me I to think avoid there's a deeper problem that you, we're not focusing on because we're talking over it so there's a scene where he totally fucks up, gets drunk. Um, doesn't get too drunk because his friend is the bartender. Yeah. And then he goes and he has a, a, a row with his uh, love interest and landlady, Tony Collette. And immediately after this, with zero interference, I, I mean, there's other scenes, but immediately after this, they don't have another conversation. She is bailing his mother out of prison. Yeah. This is unearned. This is dishonest. This feels very bullshitty. Mm -hmm. But this same thing in a show like Friends with a backstory of a season would be like, okay, so she's never really going to leave his life. They're just both doing their own thing. And so it kind of assumes that we're willing to believe that. But I wasn't. I wasn't willing to believe that she was still going to anatomy summer school after the first and only scene of her going to anatomy summer school. 
I wasn't willing to believe that she was in this relationship with Sasha Lane. I wanted to, but I couldn't. Um, yeah. So it's those moments that are almost the songs. Yeah, I felt nothing for the grandmother character, despite it, it, it was like another one of those situations where I felt like I should feel some sort of empathy, and I didn't, and that made me even feel even worse. She felt like this just stereotypical grandma where she's having soup with the granddaughter and she goes isn't this broth good and it was it was just it, it completely put me off and i was like this is not a character this is this is just a a, a list of descriptions but but what um, do you think about the characters i mentioned tony collette nick offerman kiersey clemens i think kiersey clemens was was the the strength of the three for me I, okay. I gravitated most towards her as a character um tony collette i kind of felt like her involvement in the story i felt i felt a little manipulated by how her character was sort of being involved um i guess you could kind of argue that there were that we're maybe seeing this story from nick offerman's perspective and that he's sort of led to think she likes him and then he's proved wrong i can i kind of she does kiss him so right exactly and i don't think that he was proved wrong i just think that someone liking you doesn't mean that they can't also like someone else simultaneously yeah i i agree i guess i just i just it 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 felt to me like sort of um needlessly created drama without without a real point behind it like i kind of see this movie as a movie about kind of uh, about uh transitional moments in life this daughter going off to college this guy's shop closing his relationship with tony collette just didn't just didn't do much for me it felt like another point of drama that i could not really sort of connect with yeah i i don't think that i needed the drama to find value in the performance i think that what she was asked to do when you focus on what tony is doing with her face yeah i was just uh very happy to watch her act she's just one of those actresses where once she gets a role no matter how bad it is she's there Mm. as much as she can be yeah and i don't know if it's a lot of them a lot of hours or minutes are on the cutting room floor or if it's this screenplay didn't realize that it was building an empty world yeah because it had a bar with the guy that i don't know did like cheers or something and yeah uh, yeah you know it just it it didn't feel like a lived-in screenplay like something that was a lived-in screenplay was ghost stories saw it in the same exact theater almost near near the same seat that i saw it in that was something that was on in in playhouses for six years running or more i i do remember that it was at least six years though yeah this is something that would have benefited from spending two years and and critical editing with different people doing recommendations or passes or really good studio oversight I, i don't remember it was all small independent studios. So Gunpowder and Sky was the production and Sky company was, was I remember seeing. Yeah, and, yeah. Or so distributor. Yeah. Maybe a, a more 
powerful, uh, decisive, creative mind could have kind of elucidated the coming problems and, yeah. and navigated that and maybe complete abandonment of any uh, emotional payoff from the dead mother slash wife would yeah. have been the right way to go and just leave her as a looming hole and actually yeah. play up the Sasha Lane relationship Yeah, because that's what goes on to make the songs. So it seems like the songs are kind of the hinge. So you, you yeah. have to have some of that stuff and it's like, do you get rid of Ted Danson? Yeah. Maybe. Okay, but then where is Nick going to go when he's acting like, you know, he's telling his daughter not to act or, or whatever? Yeah. You know, it's it's just a movie that has problems that you almost can't figure out a way to fix. Yeah. I mean, there, unless there's... you can look at the screenplay. But that's. It, it's almost like a person, you know? Like it's flawed, but it's still fun. You know, like yeah. I still had fun listening to the songs, even though I was seeing her mouth move when the song wasn't actually playing or vice yeah. versa. Um, in a way that I didn't. I, you know, it's not the same type of picture, but I didn't have the same amount of fun with 8th grade. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, there's a ton going on in Hearts Beat Loud, unlike 8th grade, which is focused on really one person and one person's struggle. Hearts Beat Loud is about a father-daughter relationship. It's about a father and his love life. It's about a father and his financial life. It's about a daughter and her love life. It's about a father and daughter dealing with uh, separation. Lost dealing with loss a father losing his wife a girl losing his mom so a daughter leaving it's right yeah so how she feels about leaving yeah, yeah. there's just so much going on um and that's kind of, i i don't know for me there is a huge importance in being earnest yeah and this is a very mm. earnest movie yeah so i yeah. i'm willing to look look over it and i'll probably give it uh either the same or just half a star lower than eighth grade three or eighth grade got a three and a half yes right yeah and yeah. I, I liked it i gave it the heart you know yeah it, it is a really lovely movie that i'm really glad exists it's just i don't feel like i'm ever going to watch it again and feel anything different yeah and we were just talking about only lovers left alive and, and kind of it's vinyl warmth and eternalness yeah. and how you can just rewatch it and feel something different every time maybe or find something yeah. different eighth grade is the exact opposite for me yeah. every moment is like a stand-up joke where he mm. put it there with great vision to get a reaction that he's getting yeah but the thing is i already got it and yeah. i don't necessarily want to get it again yeah and i think there's a lot of people judging by letterboxd that do want to get it again and loved getting it and yeah. i'm really glad for those people but this isn't my lady bird you know a lot of people this are making is... that comparison it's not my lady bird it's not even close for me when i watched lady bird i i didn't have many differences in the second viewing but i did have some and i i can already tell you i don't need to see it again i would agree that hearts beat loud was incredibly earnest i just could have hacked off an entire one of those sources of drama despite liking Tony Collette's performance and feeling kind of complicated about wanting to eliminate her entirely, I don't think my enjoyment of her performance added as much as her con contribution to the narrative did detract from the movie as a whole. 
there was too, there's too much good there's too much going on there's so much emotional appeal here that i feel like i'm just sort of drowning in sentiment like this feels too this feels too gooey to me this feels like it has too gooey of a heart i I think it definitely is one of those movies that's too gooey and that maybe uh tony collette could be removed for for power but i also think that this is one of tony's performances where she gives uh, such a performance that if you lost it you would regret it as as a separate piece from the movie as her collective work of performance what she how she performs here what she gives the character that she's allowed to inhabit um has a huge emotional range in a very brief amount of time and not one ounce of it is unbelievable now the movie sure that's unbelievable but you never disbelieve in her performance and i think that that's kind of our, our difference um and I guess a similar performance would be Elsie's performance as Kayla in eighth grade, where I believed every single ounce of it. And I, I was very, very uh, proud of her. I don't know her at all, but I felt proud, you know, like you feel proud for people younger than you sometimes. And I, I just yeah. was like, wow, this kid did it. Kind of like Jacob Tremblay after Room. Like I just was proud. Like good for yeah. you, kid. Yeah. So I think this will seem like a weird comparison off the bat, but I was thinking a little bit about her performance uh and casey affleck's performance in manchester by the sea whereas i I think about that movie well there's some more characters so that's not too yeah strong of a a really restrained performance a movie easily one of my favorites of that year one of my favorites i I don't know if it's a restrained performance um i i I like agree that maybe the art for him was restrained because i i can only imagine what it's like to be him performing that yeah. But when I interpret it, it's so raw. Right. There's so much on the surface. And when he talks right. to Michelle Williams' character, I mean, Michelle is amazing, but the the repressed and suppressed emotions that he has that are just right on the surface, that are so raw in Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, can you repress those and be such a live wire that the whole theater just felt yeah from the top of their head and tips of their toes what you what you're feeling as an actor you know and yeah. I, I think that that's something that elsie got away with yeah and i i heard that it was because she uh, she would would not plan what she was going to do she'd know what she was going to do and then she'd just try to do it so yeah. kind of a very honest acting performance that yeah i think a lot of the good child actors do and then you can't re- replicate that once you have adult roles. And that's why a lot of them yeah. do tend to peter out. Yeah, a lot of them. I felt like music and performance related to each other in a way in Manchester by the Sea that was more productive for me than in fifth grade. Casey Affleck's performance in Manchester by the Sea, I thought the, the that operatic score said everything that he couldn't about how he was feeling to be honest i don't remember that score at all but i can tell you that i remember only that it moved me and in the right ways and i I think that sometimes the best the best scores are the ones that you don't remember yeah i think that's true when it's a good movie you know 
and it and it's only exemplified by a score that doesn't overstate itself. Right. And right. and then you know there's always these exceptions or the exact opposite. You know we have Dunkirk, we have Star Wars. You know the Mother. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where it's almost the composer is working hand in hand with the director the whole time. Right. And maybe right. Manchester by the Sea was more suppressive. So what about the yeah. performance element of music in Manchester by the Sea? The first time I saw that movie twice, the first time I thought a little less about it. I think I I did just sort of let it, you know, wash over me. I think I do that kind of most times that I, I watch a movie for the first time. The second time, I thought a lot about when he is first um, describing to the police what happened the night he got drunk and went to the convenience store and Yeah, let's not shit get happened. into it. I don't need to cry. Exactly. He is... Uh, relating this to the police in sort of a fashion without music that would make you think he didn't even care much. He's so distant from what from the words coming out of his mouth that you know if you weren't sure what he was talking about, you would think he he maybe didn't care. The no, no, music, no, no. however, uh, so I, I've had a few injuries and I've been in shock myself. The yeah, whole time I watched that because in my own context, I thought he was in shock. Very so possible. very interesting yeah. how we each had same moment of, of time, complete different interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know the the choral music playing at that scene, reaching like the highest of operatic heights. I do super think theatrical, this, yeah. um, and that and that sort of defines the whole film. That that defines the the funeral when uh, Lee's. The funeral of Lee's brother. The um, I'm forgetting the actor's name. Kyle um, Chandler. Yeah, yeah, but it's all super melodramatic, and I and I really felt like that was an expression through form of what a character was unable to express himself, and I thought that in itself was a really empathetic um, choice. Mm -hmm. Eighth grade. I didn't listen to that interview. Uh, Good. On film spotting, spotting with interview. Bone Burnham, yep. thank you, film spotting, where he talked a little bit about debating between some kind of like docu style approach with less music versus this more impressionistic approach with music that he thought might express um, what it was she was feeling. Interestingly enough, I think what I felt the most in eighth grade was the moments when music stopped. And one of those was when, just before she walks out into the uh, pool scene, and she's in the bathroom by herself, and you think she's about to hyperventilate. She just felt, she seemed so alone, so afraid, so overwhelmed by what she was about to walk into that had nothing to do with the music. Um, and there was another scene in the mall where she's with the older kids, the high schoolers, and you see her kind of nodding to what they're talking about and sort of muttering under her breath like responses to what they're saying and what she might want to say but her eyes are kind of glazed over like you can tell she's not quite present because she's thinking about what she should say mm -hmm. or what she might say definitely um and i think that kind of presented a conflict for me about whether or not that approach with such heavy music was really constructive to well, involving me with her experience. Do you think that 
those moments would have been as powerful to you if they would have done something that you wanted them to do with the score? Or do you think that because the score is the way that it is and that it cuts out right there, you remember those moments? It's possible. There, I mean, I there is value in juxtaposition. I don't remember those moments. I have the exact opposite experience. I really enjoyed the, the soundtrack. I was yeah. more intrigued by the body dysmorphia um, of the pool scene. Yeah. Um, I was more intrigued by the uh, the the voyeurism of uh, them thinking that her dad in the mall is, is stalking them, super or, like, funny. watching them. Yeah, and, you know, like I I just kind of picked up on different moments, and I thought that the score was really, um, hmm, what's the right word? I I thought that it was really conducive to um, a a new age group of cinema kind of where, yeah. where i thought that it, you weren't excluding a single middle schooler with a soundtrack like this whereas yeah. I, I think if you took a stronger choice and you did something more hypnotic and, and more melodic um that it wouldn't have translated into a palette um friendly film that all ages could watch it it almost is to me like that get out decision we talked about last podcast where it's almost a decision made specifically to make it more approachable and more popular yeah. and more fan favorite. And you and I are in the huge minority of people yeah. that rated the movie under four. True. I did huge notice that. <laughs> I scrolled through, I, I found like five other people like us and I, think I found one that was a three star. Like this is yeah. just a universally beloved film. And yeah. I, I think that Letterbox has a lot of younger kids, high schoolers yeah. and stuff. You know, they're talking about remembering middle school. We're talking about remembering middle school 15 yeah. years ago. It's <laughs> exactly. a little bit of a different thing. They're talking about four years ago. So I, I think that it brings about this approachability that you and I can't quite fathom or be on board with just because of our removal from it. And I think yeah. that that's why something like Ladybird for me works better because... Mm-hmm. It's from a voice that I feel more kinship with in my age group, even though she's definitely not in my age group. She's about probably six or seven years older than both of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's still more, she she's closer to us as an adult, Greta is, than yeah. Bo is bringing about this eighth grade thing. And I think Bo is actually exactly our age. I think and that's right. And it's kind of yeah. like, imagine if you were trying to make the correct choices to make something approachable for middle schoolers. Yeah. I think that I would have been very lucky if I made half the choices he made. I, th- yep. I think that it's a really good movie. It's just, um, personally, if I'm trying to be objective, it's not necessarily a movie for me. It's yeah. it's much like uh, I Kill Giants, where it's not a movie for me, but I'm really glad it got made, and I've got, like, yeah. four family members that I can't wait to share it with. Yeah. Yeah, it's one I'll absolutely recommend to people. And I think has is is full of great things, um, particularly the main performance, and, and the performance of the dad. Yes, I thought he was great. I think it's funny. Um, it, I, I absolutely it is, laughed. But it's um, did it feel harrowing in the same like a comedy way. routine to you? Like, did it feel like like it couldn't have been edited differently? You yeah. know what I mean. So without having seen his comedy it's hard to say you know well, to draw do, any do like one to one a little bit yeah okay so you, um, you know how like when you say a joke there's a certain timing you have to say to get the laugh yeah and if you change yeah. the timing at all there won't be a laugh yeah it's kind of like that type of writing for me 
where yeah. if you change the editing at all, you're not going to get this laugh. It yeah. has to be this way, and you're always going to get this laugh if it's this way. Yeah. Just not from some people. And I'm, I'm just yeah. that some person. And you and I both are, and we're huge minority in this. And we yeah. still liked it, so. Yeah. I thought a lot about the truth or dare scene in the car and and whether or not that worked for me like i do think i, I do think i liked that scene but um i'm glad it's there me I, too I, I, I'm... absolutely um but i think in a way i feel like i see some of that i don't know if this is a good or bad thing i, just, I feel like i see like maybe um a comedian sensibility in there in the way that that tension is sort of undercut by the humor or response 100%, right people yeah. are giggling and people are laughing when she goes uh okay right it's it there's just this but that's the this thing that's, and how she that's responds to this. not only how she's responding that's how they're responding mm-hmm. so it's showing um you know i don't want to be mean and say it's showing their immaturity but it's showing their vulnerability because we watched it with an audience of very young kids yeah um not like children children like five to seven but like middle schoolers to high schoolers huge huge group of them um and they didn't necessarily get the implications that what was happening was wrong yeah and i think that's why the scene's really good and i think that they um did a a short segment with that on film spotting i don't remember what episode it could have been the same episode i'm not sure but they talk about how now parents have a way in to have this conversation oh right right where i i absolutely 100 percent agree i'm so happy that there's a a really easy way to get into this ethical debate to let your your young daughters know that it's 100 percent okay for you to stand up for yourself like kayla just did right that you don't need to feel the way that kayla felt you don't need to apologize you don't need to do any of that stuff right um and that it's okay to get out of the car and call dad or mom yeah. And also that parents can have the same conversation with their sons and say, this isn't okay. Yeah. You know, there, yeah. it, it doesn't necessarily lead up for a way to have that conversation because there isn't an easy way to have a conversation about how yeah. to go about that or if you should go about that at all yeah. with people between those varying ages. But it's great that um, there's something out there where you can make sure your kids don't get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think there's a, a lot of things like that in the movie. There's um, not just the truth or dare scene. There was the idea about um, nude pictures. Yes, right? yeah. The popular the kid scene. is psyched about seeing some of those. There was the banana scene. There was um, things the, shaped uh, like a banana. Google search. Absolutely. I mean, that, <laughs> and that's kind of funny in itself, just because it feels like it's. Um, that, yeah, that's a trope it's in itself. It's like that, an American Pie kind of thing, yeah. but from the perspective of an eighth grade girl, right? So, so it's kind of that's that, refreshing. Like, <laughs> it, but it's almost like the stand-up thing where, uh, like, uh, they're making you laugh when you're really uncomfortable, right? Right. It's it's exactly. very much that subversive New York comedy scene. Yeah, um, I felt the same thing during the uh, uh, school shooting drill. Right. Um, when she scoots over to him and, and starts having that conversation. Exactly. About, yeah. There's th- there's this this comedy. I, I guess this that's kind of the, the juxtaposition to that problem I was at, where they it's not a problem I'm having, but they bring up a perfect dialogue for how it's okay to say no. 
and um the just the true nature of humanity is that it's also at some point going to be okay for your kids to say yes and that there's no easy dialogue into that and that's almost a dialogue in but it's absolutely not because it's so one-sided it's about her being something for him and doing what he wants you know and i yeah yeah i do wish that um it had something in there where you could where parents could have a navigation into figuring out how to have a conversation with their kids where it they're not just getting mad at them for sex all the time yeah yeah uh connections wise the most obvious connection between hearts beat loud and eighth grade to me was the idea of just father-daughter relationships specifically i think eighth grade would have played super differently if there was a mom i think that mm-hmm. makes the 100%. older high school girl um her she she is that much more important i think um because of the absence of uh of a mom in yeah. elsie's life um and i think that was a pretty actually impactful scene for me when she really connects with that high school girl um i was just like, i was like, i was more excited then to just sort of be there with How, did Elsie. you ever have an experience like that where you were kind of i didn't pulling that out? okay no did you do a shadow uh, thing i never did school? a shadow but i i did have like a pen pal who's much older uh, than me when i was in um, elementary school and, yeah. and she was super kind, super sweet. And she'd buy me, like, a king-size candy bar and yeah. just write really kind letters. And, you know, just absolutely that type of a personality. And I was yeah. welled up with emotion during those scenes, remembering this person who I don't even – I think her name was Danielle or Daniela, and I haven't yeah. thought about her in years. And, you know, it was yeah. – it, it's that movie that pulls up nostalgia, but it's very one-note. I'm never going to get – different nostalgia than the nostalgia yeah. already gave me it's it's just like that stand-up routine where it that it to me it's that uh kind of upper east side new york tight stand-up set where <laughs> you're not gonna get more than you already got from something whereas yeah. someone like uh jim gaffigan or, or joe rogan or or john mulaney for whatever reason can keep getting different giggles from me every time yeah for some reason i i can't get that from from uh, Bo and I, yeah. someone else that I love, um, Bill Burr, but I always laugh at the same parts of Bill Burr, but I always laugh. So that yeah. says something, you know. Um, yeah. It, it just kind of doesn't work for it's just that over sterileness, but I still love so many parts of that work. Yeah. Um, I don't know where Kumail Nanjiani fits in the comedy scene, but LA. I see he's LA. LA. See, I Robert. feel, I feel like this is sort of a this is in a way a kindred spirit to me with with the big sick this is broadly accessible this has sort of an obvious emotional you think appeal. the big sick is a comedy not a not a did i say comedy no uh, but we're talking about comedy specials so, okay so oh you, i think about, he's a comedian though camille nanjiani uh, right I, I know that he does improv i've never seen yeah. a stand-up special from him so i don't know that i would call oh, okay. him stand-up i'm yeah i'm i know that he does things in comedian circles and he's very very accomplished and super entertaining as a performer i just never seen him do a stand-up routine so i don't know yeah yeah i do like i just think it'll be interesting to see if if more comedians pursue filmmaking careers i i was i thought he i thought he was a stand-up i could be wrong um well i uh, that is interesting because um 
I, I think personally my favorite venture from a comedian into lens yeah. is Master of None. Oh yeah, Ali, that's a great example. Absolutely I love Master favorite. of None, and I feel Me like too. that's because he's allowed to breathe as himself in multiple formats as a character, and he got yeah. to collaborate with just some of the very best artists at the top of their field. Yeah, um, it's not fair almost to compare the two, but I, yeah. I really do think that's kind of the pinnacle of comedians going to do something unless we talk about people that are kind of uh sidelined and not viewed very well in the public eye right now (laughs) yeah yeah i think i mean aziz i think has like the most uh cinephile like sensibility to his miniseries i think like just among moviegoers i think that has sort of this built-in appeal right i think about episode one of season two the that bicycle bicycle thieves homage like that's just like or how about that uh, thanksgiving episode that he did with lena waith where she Uh, basically wrote uh the whole thing i don't know if i remember that episode off the top of my head oh um so he goes over to his friend's house when they're really young it's little oh yeah flashback flashback yeah yeah okay so lena waith wrote that whole episode yeah now she runs a little show called the chai yeah, Showtime, yeah, 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 which is like, it may end up being one of my top three shows this year. Yeah, I know you've recommended that. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there. We were Where talking we about Bo Burnham, uh, and other comedians other comedians coming yeah. into this A twenty four opening of of doing stuff. Exactly, I think that's kind of an interesting interesting trend, and uh, I think despite not loving it's great i think it shows that like it is it does sort of bring a unique sensibility to filmmaking it does yeah yeah i think it's going that, to be interesting um f- not to cast aspersions on either director or writer of eighth grade or hearts be loud but one yeah. director that would have made both movies better for me alex ross perry Ooh, I think that would be a much more abrasive type of movie, though. I, I, but if he tried to adapt and use yeah. those framing conceits in the way that he captures um, continuous moments in the life, like, he yeah. would have used that record store more continuously. He would have used that dinner yeah. table more continuously. I think it just would have worked better for me. I don't yeah. think that I like the event style of 8th grade. I think that the more that I reflect yeah. on it, I don't like how it's always in a different setting. Yeah, They go to the mall yeah. once. They go on a different boy's car once. She goes and has dinner with Gabe once. She goes to the the swimming pool once. And that is very much, I understand, of that time. You're getting to do things once. Yeah. But at at home, there is a continuum that I think is missing. In the car, there's a continuum that I think is missing. I think that you could shoot that really well and i think alex ross perry is the right guy to shoot a car dialogue scene can, yeah that just keeps evolving as the plot goes on and we keep coming back to kind of a turnstile uh to yeah. show us growth and i think hearts beat loud could have done the same thing with the record store or with uh the house counter and they could have included those bills and they could have really built stuff yeah. up and um he could have like had tony collette's phone number written down and that could have had a discussion between them where the, he actually has to talk to someone else about how he's feeling because yeah. that's kind of the the thing is that the, he never talks to anyone else about how he's feeling. He only makes her talk about herself. 
yeah. which might have been a point, but I think it was a useless point that would have been better served in something else. Yeah. With Alex Roxbury, I don't think of him as a director who particularly has a strong affection for his characters. I think he has... I don't either, but anyone sort can of adapt a to a screenplay. Right, exactly. I don't know, and I think I don't know Emily, exactly Emily how much... Emily Browning was pretty well depicted in Golden Exits, I think. I would agree. She was... Um, she was captured a bit more fondly yeah. relative to the other characters. And, and I think that maybe is what's missing from Hearts Be Loud. Ted yeah. Danson turning into an asshole from Alex Ross Perry's framing and direction, you know, um, yeah. actually getting mad at Tony Collette instead of thinking that she's being completely reasonable and kind of getting mad at Nick Offerman, you know. Yeah. I, it, it lacked me shifting my emotional perspective very much. Yeah. And I think that a director that's a very acute with emotional perspective could maybe draw that out better. Yeah. This is the the second movie I've seen from the director of Hearts Beat Loud. The other one, director's Brett Haley. He directed a movie called The Hero with, um, who's the girl with the glasses from Orange is the New Black who was also on that 70s show? Um, uh, Laura Prathen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, she was in it as well as the male actor with the real deep voice, Sam something. Um, I'm blinking on. Oh yeah, 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 Sam. yeah. And he, I thought he directed that movie. Uh, no, I don't think so. He starred in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sam, not Waterston, but something like that. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah. Um, he's in the ranch. Plays the dad, to Ashton Kutcher. Um, uh, different movie. Wasn't set on a ranch, I don't think. No, no, no. Uh, Netflix show called oh, The Ranch. <laughs> got it, he got plays it. Ashton Kutcher's dad. Um, <laughs> got it. Yeah. So you think that uh, the hero was better than Hearts Beat Loud, or do you see the same problems? I think it was worse. I think I think I see the exact same problems though. Where I think he buffs out too many edges from his movies to achieve a broad accessibility and uh, build that ooey gooey center. And I think what Alec Ross Perry has has a little bit of that, um, a little bit of that bite that it just feels like m might be needed here so, to sort of accentuate the goodness of it. I, to, <laughs> to me, off off the cuff, I'd say that Alec Ross Perry has every ounce that it takes to be a film festival circuit director. Yeah, and that the director you're talking about has every bit of nuance and absolute sheer quality that it takes to be a VOD director. That seems to wrap up uh, Drinking the Movies episode two with Michael. And Taylor. Our last two that we discussed there were Hearts Beat Loud and Eighth Grade. Eighth Grade is directed and written by Bo Burnham. The director of Hearts Beat Loud is Brett Haley. Uh, we will have show notes that link the timestamps and all the specific movies we watched uh, in order. Uh, tune in next week for a little historical rollback. That's We're going to be doing uh, 310 to Yuma, Hail Caesar, and Peter Weir's Master and Commander. All new to me, all rewatches for you, correct? All rewatches for me that I'm ecstatic to get to have an excuse to rewatch. Should be good stuff. All right. Thanks for listening, guys, and tune in next week. Until next time. And scene. Yeah. <laughs>